Hi, everybody. It's Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. I hope you're doing very well. Do I sound angry? No, I don't. Okay. It's 8.04 on the 2nd of October 2013. Should I adjust my chair up or down? Down? No, too low. All right. Uh, Mike, let's go on with the first caller. Uh, <laughs> no intro because we got lots of callers tonight. All right, Ben, go ahead. You're up first. Hi, Steph. Hi, Ben. How you doing? Very well, thank you. I wanted to start by thanking you for all the hard work that you do. Um, I think your work does a lot of good. Um, obviously, you spread ideas of nonviolence, voluntary cooperation, sound parenting, stuff like that. It's all great. Um, and I think that it's not easy to condense complicated concepts down into easy to understand um, models and metaphors, but you do it very well. So thanks for that. Thank you. I hope my work does good for the good and evil to the evil. Yeah, evil to evil is uh, something people often forget. However, um, I do feel that some of your assumptions are perhaps going unchallenged. Um, there's like some of those that are like more important to me than others. Um, and I would say that chief among um, the areas in which I sort of diverge from, from your particular viewpoint is the presence of industrial civilization and the capitalist system itself. Um, my kind of view is that we should question everything. I don't know if you've read the essay Maximalist Anarchism by John Moore. No. Um, if I could just briefly quote one paragraph, he says that um, the totality of power relations and the ensemble of control structures which embody those relations, he calls the control complex. Um, he says that it's not located in any single institution such as patriarchy or the state, but is pervasive in every day. And what he then recommends is that basically everything be rigorously questioned so that, you know, no, no part, no heteronymous uh, force is left. Um, if there's going to be some kind of overturning of the current order um, towards a, you know, nonviolent um voluntary way of life that everything be totally questioned um so with regards to your own views i know that you don't like to identify yourself by your conclusions but it does seem fair to say that your philosophy falls somewhere close to sort of rothbardian anarcho-capitalism um and it's actually anarcho-capitalism that my question relates to so okay would you like to pose uh, a question yeah sure so my question is that like um i've often wondered how much that you've looked into serious critiques of civilization and capitalism, uh, and if you have, why you... Are you kidding me? Do you well, think that you I mean, can draw breath in the 20th or 21st century without being subjected to endless and bottomless critiques of uh, capitalism and the free market? I mean, I grew up in Canada. Well, I grew up in England, and I grew up in Canada. I grew up in England uh, in the socialist 70s, uh, and then uh, my mother wanted to leave... Canada because she was concerned about, um, well, her cover story was that she was concerned about an excess of socialism in England, which of course there was, and we left shortly prior to the Thatcherite revolution, which turned out to be a mere blip uh, downwards in the increasing spiral of state power. And they came to Canada, um, you know, went to, I think, three, yeah, York University, McGill University, and the University of Toronto, spent two years, uh, two years at the first two and one year at the last, getting my master's. 
uh, all, of course, bastions of endless left-wing thought. I took courses taught by explicitly and openly Marxist professors. Not a lot of Nazis there, but there were quite a lot of Marxists, as if uh, Nazis are just uh, second-grade uh, Marxists in terms of their death count. Uh, so I think that to say that I may not be aware of explicit critiques of capitalism when I've taken entire university-level courses, one was called The Rise of Socialism, oh, sorry, The Rise of Capitalism, The Socialist Response, uh, taught by a Marxist professor, as is so many, looked almost identif identical to an Ewok. Uh, so uh, you may not know all this, but I think just anybody who's in the modern world is uh, has to suffer through endless critiques of capitalism and the free market. Yeah, I wasn't referring to, um, like, you know, those particular critiques, you know, um, socialist critiques, Marxist critiques. Well, look, instead of, it, sorry to interrupt, inst just in the interest of keeping the show moving along, instead of asking me if I have been exposed to particular criticisms, perhaps you can just level those criticisms and I'll see if I can uh, find a way to respond or incorporate them. Well, yeah, I mean, anarcho-capitalism basically is con comprised of an anarchism and capitalism. And it seems to me that on the anarchist side, it's really... Um, a voluntarist approach that specifically seeks to find a way for mass society to continue, believing that there is a way that people who share no fundamental values can find a way of living together. And on the capitalist side, um, that you know, the, the anarcho-capitalists suggest that whether or not governments and intervention they bring are involved or not, um, that a production-based lifestyle to continue is a desirable thing. Um, and I would I'm sorry, I, I'm that, afraid I don't really understand any of that, but what I will say is that the state relies upon the initiation of force and the non-aggression principle which we all accept in our private lives and in our social lives and in our romantic lives and in our business lives, we create endless excuses for in our political lives. And so the non-aggression principle simply says that the initiation of force is immoral. Since the government relies upon the initiation of force, the government must be an immoral institution in the same way that slavery was. I don't know about continuing and flourishing and different values and this and that and the other um, it is simply those, you know, property rights non-aggression principle results in a stateless society if you're going to hold those values to be true, uh, universal and constant. Yes, absolutely. But I mean, assuming that both, assuming you got your way, um, would you be completely happy for the current um, extraction of resources and production-based, uh, you know, paradigm to continue? Or, or have you looked into lot of like more primitivist and other Wait, 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 sorry. Should... I, first of all, first of all, philosophy is not about me getting my way, right? Right? Einstein didn't just get his way. Uh, Newton didn't just get his way. Um, Darwin didn't just get his way. The arguments are valid or they're invalid. Now, if uh, I, I know for sure that current resource consumption would diminish enormously in a, uh, in a free society uh, because um, the, the roads wouldn't be free uh, and... Um, you would uh, probably make a good deal of money by not spending money, right? In the same way that the Bitcoins are rising in value and so on, and gold is rising in value, a rational currency would uh, seek to maintain its value, which means that as capital improvements and productivity improvements and efficiency improvements all drove standard of livings higher, in other words, as a worker was able to produce more and more, with the same amount of labor because of the accompanying machinery or, or technology uh, or processes that would be much more efficient, that money would be worth more and more over time, which means that uh, people would um, uh, want to save rather than spend. And that would create the virtuous cycle, right? Instead of a vicious cycle, which we currently have now, it would create a virtuous cycle. The more people save, 
the more capital can be invested in improvements, and therefore the more money, uh, the more their money is valuable next year, and the more it's valuable the year after, which means they have a greater incentive to save and continue uh, to fund whether they, you know, because they have money in banks, or whatever, fund capital improvements in the entrepreneurial sphere. So. Uh, for sure, uh, right now, every incentive is there to consume resources, to um, to send kids to school on on uh, you know, fossil fuel burning buses, and to have them all enclosed in these particular areas. Uh, and um, uh, who knows how it would all look uh, in a free society? But there would be much less incentive to spend and consume resources in the future than uh, than there would than there is now. So I would assume that that would be the case. Now, if I wanted people to live in a primitivist kind of way, if I thought that uh, lovely little speech from a fight club, which was, uh, you know, I, I, the world, in the world I live in, we're all hunting deer down the canyons of Wall Street and so on and drying the hides and so on. Well, then you can make the case for that. Then you can say this is how people should live in the same way that people make the case for the paleo diet or the, the South Beach diet or the, you know, gravel and sunlight diet or whatever the hell people come up with. You can make the case for that. I mean, you can't initiate force because that's evil, but I'm not saying you would want to, but but you can make the case for that. So in terms of do I think this or that would happen, I don't know and I don't really care. Uh, all I care about is that we either get up front with our ethics and say, you know what, we do like the initiation of force. You know what, we do like taxation, we do like war, we do like governments, we do like the war on drugs. So let's just make that a universal constant that everyone can initiate force as much as they want. Uh, but instead, we have this mealy-mouthed, uh, two-faced Janus-style set of ethics where for the citizen, uh, force and counterfeiting and the initiation of violence is, is wrong, and for the government, it's somehow moral. So we just got to iron out that inconsistency and either make it a truly Hobbesian war of all against all, which of course would never work and is rationally illogical, or we simply accept that the government is immoral. Um, we we uh, bring our social institutions in conformity with the ethics that we so loudly trumpet from every rooftop and which we constantly drill into the ear of every kindergartner. And then we will uh, actually have a rational, free, and benevolent society. What happens after that? I, I really I can't imagine. I don't care. It's a, at least 100 to 200 years away. And um, who knows? I mean, it's like saying to somebody in 1800, what's the world going to look like by the year 2000? I mean, whatever they guessed would be largely ridiculous. And if true, would only be coincidentally true. What they needed to do was to focus on the ethics of their time rather than the possible manifestation of freedom in the future. And that's really all I'm focused on, too. Okay, well, that's fair enough. I mean, I kind of just, um, I wondered, ha had you got to that point where you're looking about, you know, beyond the changes that you've just spoken about, what kind of, you know, from that point, what kind of ways of living would be um, more sustainable and um, and better from that point of view? But, I mean, if it's your view... Well, look, I mean, no, 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 a free society will be much more sustainable, of course. I mean, just a couple of things, right? I mean... So a free society will not waste massive amounts of resources keeping children in tiny little sardine-style boxes for 12 years of their youth, uh, and that will save a huge amount of resources. Uh, a, a free society will not waste enormous amounts of resources creating and heating government uh, buildings, uh, creating and heating uh, IRS buildings, creating and heating NSA, CIA, FBI, whatever the hellish alphabet soup of modern fascism uh, is uh, floating around, uh, all of that stuff will be gone by the wayside. Uh, pollution will be far lower because all of this crap won't be around polluting all the time. There won't be all these prisons uh, because there will be 
far fewer, in fact, no manufactured crimes uh, such as the drugs, prostitution, gambling, and so on. There will only be real crimes and very few of those. So we won't have the military-industrial complex. There won't be war. I mean, the, the um, American military consumes as, as much oil on any given day as the entire damn continent of India does with its billion or so people. And so uh, resource usage will be far lower, far lower in a free society. The booms and busts, which are the massive misallocations of capital and, and the precious resources of the planet, uh, will not be going on where you've got 10 to 15 percent of housing stock in the United States currently vacant because of the boom or bust created by manipulated currencies. So yeah, absolutely, there will be far less waste and pollution and a far uh, simpler and more efficient allocation of our scarce and precious resources. And without all the taxation being pulled out of private industry, we can go and mine asteroids, we can set up solar sails around uh, the, the world to capture the sun's uh, light, we can do lots of things which right now uh, nobody has the money, time, inclination, or long-term planning capacity, given the random nature of uh, uh, generalized, blindfolded stabbing of regulations and tax laws and, and other, uh, other kinds of uh, laws, we can do as many amazing things as we can imagine. But right now, we can't have cool stuff, we can't have efficient stuff, we can't have nice, nice stuff, because the government has its sword to our throat, and we're, you know, kind of barely a, 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 have the courage to blink these days. Okay. So, I mean, you talk a lot about parenting, and um, I think that's crucial. Uh, I completely agree with you on that. If we're going to be um, passing on positive messages to future generations through decent parenting, um, is like the sustainability of our living environments and, you know, wanting to get out of cities and find ways that are actually, you know, rational, um, live, living day to day, is that not a good idea to pass that on to our children and to, well, to I'm sorry, what's irrational about cities? Well, I mean, cities are not sustainable in any way, shape, or form because they require... Why are cities not sustainable? They require the importation of resources from somewhere else. And so? Well, that cycle only continues. The, the, the bigger the city grows, and the more the city continues, the more things that need to be coming into it have got to be taken from somewhere else, which means more resource extraction which is not you know not replenished I, I i don't think that makes any sense at all if you don't mind me saying so i mean having people in a concentrated area is actually quite good i mean if everybody was on a 10 acre farm i mean getting electricity to all those people would be a nightmare right i mean at least if they're all concentrated in a city sewage systems uh, uh, and electricity systems and so on are all very concentrated and very efficient uh, so i'm not sure i mean Cities grow a little bit artificially. There's all the zoning stuff and rent subsidies and so on. But I don't see how cities themselves, I mean, the, the resources have to be used no matter how many people there are. Uh, but I don't see how um, it's possible to uh, say that cities are irrational. So, for instance, in Canada here now, it's been calculated that it takes about $650,000 all told to take a child from birth to the age of 22. As as the price of, as as more and more people want to go in cities, then it will become more expensive to raise children in cities. And, and I think forty years ago, the Canadian uh, birth rate was uh, three point six. I think uh, children per couple, and now it's like one point uh, 1. 1.6 or some one point seven or something like that. Now, part of that is just artificial crap, but part of that is the reality that 
uh, as housing prices go up, as more people want to live in cities, as the cost of things goes up, uh, people end up having fewer children. That's the way that economics works, right? I mean, if things get more expensive, you end up with fewer of them. And uh, the best contraception is this kind of industrialization. So cities can't grow infinitely because the more people want to crowd in there, the more expensive it becomes to raise children and the more attractive not living there becomes and a free society will just shift resources uh, elsewhere, uh, telecommuting or uh, people will just find ways to work uh, distantly and so on. So um, uh, cities have a natural uh, fuse built into them, which is uh, as they get more expensive, fewer people want to live there or raise children there. So uh, I don't see how you get that they would grow beyond what the economy could sustain. Uh, that that can't happen in a free market. I mean, because if it, it's a soft landing, it's always a soft landing, right? Because prices just increase until people's behavior modifies itself slowly uh, so that um, supply and demand meet at a rational point. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's it's not about future growth. They're, ne they're necessarily now um, already unsustainable. A lot of the um, research I've done over the last couple of years is specifically into this question. I mean, for example, you can't grow food um, for everyone to uh, eat within the city. You have to take it from elsewhere, um, sure. which means so? that you know, you're, you've got resources going in that direction. And No, but that's know, good because you get the division of labor. No, you get the division of labor, right? So then the, the farmers are focused on farming and the people in the city are focused on the value-added production of stuff part of which goes to the farmer, right? So the, the people in Hollywood are making the TV shows that the farmer wants to watch at night, and in return, the farmer is is giving them food. It's a division of labor. It seems entirely rational. Anyway, I don't think I've agreed with anything that you've said, so with all due respect, I think I'll move on to the next caller. It doesn't mean you're wrong. Uh, it just means that I think we're kind of going round and round in circles. So, Mike, if we could bring up the next caller, please. All right, Red, Redward, you're up next. It is hard to say. I know. How you doing, Steph? Uh, it's, uh, it, 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 I am doing well. I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm very well, very well. So I want to bring up somewhat of a, a complex situation. I feel like uh, there are a bunch of uh, semi-psychopaths and emotionally incontinent people around me uh, within my immediate family right now. Uh, I am a musician. I uh, am constantly driving around in the nighttime, and whenever I get home, I crash and I wake up and my uh, daytime job, as I would call it, is uh, taking care of my grandmother, who is at like gosh, six strokes now. It's, it's, it's getting up there. Uh, she's 72. She never smoked at all in her life. Everybody else around here did, including uh, me and my grandfather, my parents. It's all of us. So uh, she has, nobody else has really put this together in my family. It's something called a pseudo bulbar affect and it's just uncontrollable laughter uh complete and total vanishing of any kind of sadness that she may have and as i have a uh, i'm sorry I, I didn't understand that right. what is that is that a condition that she has yeah 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 pseudo bulbar affect it comes from people who have a brain uh not disorders but a, a trauma to the brain or oxygen deprivation from multiple strokes and okay. it, she, she just laughs at everything, especially inappropriate things. So we don't take her anywhere. She sits there and watches TV all day. Used to chain smoke like crazy. But about three months ago, my grandfather... Wait, you said... Wait, 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 wait. You said okay. she didn't smoke. <laughs> no, and now you're saying she's all. chain smoking. Oh, oh, she was. She was. Uh, past two years, I'd say, it got completely out of hand. Uh, oh, you mean... Wait, did, she, did she start smoking after she had the strokes? Yeah, yeah, it was uh, 
just a decision wow. she made. Not a lot of uh, not a lot of grandmothers it. pick up the weed <laughs> later on yeah. in life. <laughs> anyway, eighteen yeah. to twenty-four, but, uh, I think, is the target demographic for this kind of yeah. stuff. <laughs> but the, the cigarettes in general, uh, cigarettes specifically. So there would be like a whole pack for her left in the morning, and it would be gone within two hours. Just chain smoke. Forget that she had one, and. The people who ought to be... How is that... Um, sorry to interrupt. How is that okay, possible or allowed? I mean, somebody with dementia shouldn't be smoking, right? Uh, right, right. Uh, so where's she getting the, them from? Uh, well, not anymore. Since um, I have a okay. line for this story. So I know I'm okay, just now to listen, I've got to make sure you get to a question here. Uh, certainly, though, this is interesting. But uh, what's your question? Uh, exactly how my question really comes down to... When I am fulfilling this biological deal that my parents and or aunts and uncles ought to be fulfilling, but all of them ended up being uh, addicts because of the terrible parenting of my grandparents. Oh, but so she was, was a nasty mom? A terrible, 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 terrible mother. But since How terrible? Strokes, like what? Uh, we're talking... Uh, these stories I get over and over from my father about like horrid spanking stories, like with a bucket of hot water and just uh, repeated uh, Bible verses being taught that way. I mean, just, just horrid stories. So emotionally, uh, physically, verbally, yeah, abusive. emotionally, physically, uh, verbally, all of that on right. so many levels. It did. It doesn't make sense. It didn't compute in my mind when I was younger because she was the sweetest old lady as a grandmother. And when all of my, my father turned out to be an addict, my aunt's an addict, and my uncle is an alcoholic, and all of them definitely pass for semi-psychopaths. They don't care. They're not really present. They're taking money constantly because my grandfather is done well for himself. So at what point does it become – at what point do I have to – either break away or stop fulfilling this biological deal that I know isn't mine because I was doing really well before I came here. It, it was just... It's... Why, um, why are you doing this uh, in the first place? I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. I'm just curious why you're doing right, it right, in the right. first place. Uh, it's, it's stability, I suppose. Right now I'm uh, able to do what I love music-wise and uh, come home and uh, wake up and, and basically I feel like a house made in a sense. Oh, she's, uh, with, do you mean she's paying for your room and board? Uh, my, my grandfather has, has always taken care of the money stuff. I have uh, been So your grandfather has always as, paid for you? Uh, in, in a sense, I have those uh, a parasitic trait in that way. And it's and um, it's, how long have you been doing your music for? Um, I started playing when I was eight years old, so it's it's been pretty serious. I didn't go to college or anything. I focused all my time on playing, and uh, I've earned the majority of my uh, what would be living that way. Never paid taxes for doing music, but when I was in DC, and why I, why can't you make a living at your music? Uh, well, I was making a living as a general manager at a sandwich shop in D.C. when I got a call saying she had another stroke, didn't know how things were going to go, came down to North Carolina, boss, 
basically told me I kind of had to choose because we were getting swamped, and I ended up staying. Emotional. You didn't answer my question. Decision. Okay. Well, why can't why can't you make a living I, at your music? I don't know. I hate marketing. I've always been terrible at it. I've always written songs for me. And I don't know. The idea of a performance isn't something oh, you don't, that look, I... Look, I mean, Justin Bieber was like on, <laughs> on a YouTube channel. Like he just had his little YouTube channel where he sang. I don't think he marketed himself at all, right? Uh, and so, again... You know, you can talk about quantity versus quality, but I don't think you have to be a marketing genius if you have great songs and put yourself out there or whatever. It seems that that would just sort of happen. Yeah. Hmm. I, I mean, what stuff. would you do if you didn't have this uh, free room and board? What would you be doing? Oh, I'd probably be back in D.C. or Pennsylvania right now or any Jimmy John's really. <laughs> I probably wouldn't be pursuing music at all. It's just uh, as the yeah, because I mean, of look, I mean, and there's nothing wrong with pursuing music as a hobby, right? I mean, right. my accountant's in a band, and uh, he's pretty good. He's a drummer, and um, but but he's an accountant, and he does that sort of stuff mm -hmm. nights and weekends. And uh, I, I'm a big one for dumping on people's dreams. Uh, I think dreams can be <laughs> extremely dangerous. Uh, because you always hear these, oh, follow your dream. Your dream is the best. You know, you got to stay true to your dream. But you hear this from people who made it. So of course they're going to say that because you know it's like uh, it's like Brad Pitt telling you you just got to be confident with women. Well, if you're Brad Pitt, I guess you don't really need to be confident with women because you're Brad Pitt. But um, uh, I think it's important to recognize what the market is telling you about what you're doing, and not mm -hmm. to uh, put stopgap measures in. I mean, I tried for years to be a, a novelist and and all that kind of stuff, and I got fantastic reviews of the books, and my writing teachers loved what I was doing. Just couldn't ever sell the damn stuff for reasons that is mm -hmm. for reasons that are completely obvious to me now, but weren't obvious to me at the time, around the philosophical appropriateness of my novels to the general audience. But um, it seems to me that you could easily get stuck in a kind of limbo here, right? Where you're taking free room and board, you're pursuing your music stuff, and what the hell is happening with your life? And what is your cutoff point? Like, what is your cutoff point? At what point do you say, well, I give myself another six months, I'm going to get everything I've got, and then uh, I'm, if I don't have a steady income or some sort of reasonable income, then I'm going to, uh, I'm going to pack it in, at least as a, a sort of focus on my main career, uh, and then I have a freedom to pursue something that is, uh, in the market, more, more valuable uh, to to the uh, to the world as a whole, right? The price that you're getting is is the measure of your value to the world. The price that you're getting is your is the measure of your value to the world. That doesn't mean that the world is always has the best values and so on, but it is a measure of your uh, value uh, to the world. Uh, the world when I quit, uh, my the world valued me about four times uh, as a software guy than it did as an internet philosophy guy. Um, so I sort of made up the difference with <laughs> my mad enthusiasm. Right, right, right. Uh, so, um, what is your plan? I mean, what is going to happen over time with this music stuff? Do you have a cutoff point? Do you have uh, a plan for measuring your income? Are you getting any income from it at all now? Uh, in, uh, I'd say twice a month, I play weekends. I, uh, in the past, I haven't relied on it. Uh, I haven't held on to it as a dream. Okay, again, you're not answering my question. Are you getting paid any money for your music at the moment? Yes, yes. And how much Not are you making a month on your music? Oh, I'd say 180 every weekend that I play. 
you know, just 180. And what are your expenses? Uh, very low, very low. I'm in North Carolina, small house. So no, I mean, but uh, you know, you got to drive there, and and you got to keep your instruments yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. up to date and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, right. So you're probably adding of- about 200 bucks a month, 250. Something like that. Uh, yeah. So, so the market is telling you that you have a fine hobby. Right, right, in its right. State. Yeah. And, I, I you would, know, I would say can dream about their hobby paying them two to 250 bucks a month, right? Yeah. Unless your yeah. hobby is collecting diamonds or, some, or something. <laughs> right, or gold, right. Or bitcoins. So I just sort of want to point that out, that the market gives you a lot of information, which we as free market people should really take note of, right? How much right, right, does the right, world right. value my contributions? And... Um, uh, of course, your passion and your preferences and all that. I'm not saying don't pursue your dreams. I'm just saying pursue your dreams, but have a bailout plan, right? You know, like if you right. jump out and of a plane with a uh, parachute, at some point you say, well, I'll go to a thousand feet. Then I got to open it up, right? Then I got to do something. If I am a hit, then I leave a splat on the ground. So uh, I would say, you know, if you're getting this free room and board and in return, you have to take care of this nasty, I guess, ex-nasty, now nice and chain-smoking grandma. Well, that's a deal you can make, of course, right? I mean, but... The problem is that uh, you really can lose quite a li- little bit of time if you're only playing, what is it, you said two weekends a month you play? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's that's barely even a hobby, right? Because what are you playing, like uh, three or four hours a set? Maybe two, three? Uh, six. You play six hours in a row? Uh, the, well, with, you know, what would be smoking breaks, uh, but they... Okay, so you, so you play five so. hours twice a month. But Yeah, we could... Okay, that's like a work day. One work day a month. So what are you doing with your time? Uh, It seems like it... I I can't really tell if it's immoral. Maybe it would be a uh, different uh, call that I could... uh, People's homework online. Uh, That, and specifically, is... People's homework online? What does that mean? uh, I, I help people who have, what is it, uh, extra income and have basic things that they uh, do, like this photovoltaic stuff right now. And that uh, pays much better than music does, and that feels like a hobby. It's not something I would consider immoral. I feel like I reallocate the knowledge that somebody ought to be getting for a degree that's not going to mean anything. And if they have the means to pay me, why should we be able to make that trade? Okay, fine. Okay, so you have a sort of a part-time something, some, some, something like tutoring or something like that, and you've got, you play 10 hours a month uh, in, in, your, in music. So, I mean, the reality is, you're, I mean, philosophically, at least my argument would be you're under no obligation to take care of your parents, uh, your grandparents, your aunts, your uncles, or anything like that. You are under no moral obligation uh, to take care of it, in other, to take care of them. In other words, you are not initiating the use of force by not taking care of someone. Now, right. if you're a parent and you have a baby, then you are initiating the use of force by not taking care of someone because you are actively starving someone who has no other options for food, right? So if I lock someone in my basement, I'm obligated to give them food and water otherwise uh, and hopefully set them free, but then I, otherwise I'm murdering them, right? Whereas if a guy down, you know, two cities over needs some food and water and I don't provide it to him, I'm not initiating the use of force against him because he's got a wide variety of other options. I may not even know about his situation. So 
you are not initiating the use of force, you are not initiating fraud if you don't want to take care of people in your family uh, other than your children or children that you adopt, your right. native or, or adopted children. So it's not immoral for you to not take care of your, um, now, uh, of these people. So if you don't want to do it and you find it morally repugnant and the woman was an abuser and so on, then clearly uh, you can make a choice to not do it. And uh, I, for one, you know, you reap what you sow. You know, at the end of, <laughs> at the end of every right. movie with a bad guy, you know, the bad guy usually gets blown up or eaten by a shark or hit with a laser or, <laughs> you know, squished uh, like the Terminator under these big giant industrial presses. Bad guys uh, in movies come to really, really bad ends. And uh, the audience, what do they do? Do they go, oh, wow, well, that's really terrible. Maybe that guy, bad guy had a really bad childhood, and maybe he's really in need, and maybe he just wanted a hut. No, they say, yeah, got him. And in life, I don't think that we should do these terrible things to abusers. We shouldn't crush them in industrial presses. We shouldn't hit them with lasers or anything like that. But neither do I think uh, if we don't want to, we should be obligated to take care of people who've been abusive to us or to people we really care about. I mean, we don't uh, ask the woman who's the victim of a rapist to go and change his catheter should he get into an automobile accident. And uh, if you are the victim of abuse, I think that feeling the obligation to go and take care of your abuser uh, is, to me, kind of gross. Uh, it, it's kind yeah. of a, a pretty horrible thing to, uh, to expect. Uh, if a woman was beaten by her husband for 30 years and then he gets sick, and if that woman then goes and moves in with him and takes care of him, I think we would recognize that that's a pretty sad-ass surrender to the past and is not based upon her own happiness but based on her, on her own codependence. And that's different. I mean, the, 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 the spousal relationship is chosen, right? You get to, to meet, to date, to test drive, to get engaged to, to get married to. You can leave at any time, uh, whereas the parent-child relationship is nothing of the kind. You're born into a family. You can't leave. You can't get a job. You can't move out. You have no choice uh, in the family. You don't get to test drive them first. Nobody says, hey, here's the family you're going to get born into. What do you think? Do you want to wait for behind what's curtain number two, or are you going to just go with the... You don't get any of that. So the least voluntary relationship in the whole world is the relationship between a child and his or her parents. Uh, and this right. accrues no obligation on the part of a child. I think we would recognize that if a woman was abused for, say, 20 years or 30 years, if her abuser, and, and then she, she left, she got out, she went to a woman's shelter, she, she sort of got out, rebuilt her life, and then her husband said, I'm sick, come take care of me. And if she said, what? I'm going to drop my life. I'm going to go back and move in with my abuser and take care of him. I think we would view that like, really? There's something not quite right about that. And so uh, if your parents have been good to you, if they loved you and you want to do it because you care about them and you want to make them happy and you want to spend their last months or, or years together, well, of course, I think that's wonderful. That's great. But um, I don't think that children are under any obligation whatsoever because they did not choose their relationship uh, with their parents and it is not the initiation of force to not take care of someone. Well, I'm going to let this show get on the road. Thanks, Steph. Good talk. <laughs> All right. Thanks. All right, Lucas, go ahead. Hello, hello. Hello. Uh, go for can it. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, so I have some stuff written down here, some background. Um, I will read it to you, and then you can uh, get going. Is it long? Um, I'll make it as fast as I can. Would you like me to send it to you, and then you can read it? Uh, no, I can hear you fine. Go ahead. 
Okay. Uh, my girlfriend is 18 years old. She has an extreme fear of being chased. If I so much as walk fast towards her, she freaks out and runs away. She also has a fear of the deep end of the pool and fear of the dark. She has some history of abuse, including being spanked with a belt and punched by her older brothers. She, had she has described to me that just hearing her mother's voice makes her incredibly angry. Uh, she has never had her own room or much privacy. Her parents are Christian, and she was raised a Christian. Whenever her father gets angry at her, he says that God is angry at her for disobeying her parents. Uh, when I question her about her religions, he can sometimes become upset. And when I ask her why okay, she I think I've heard enough. Things... Okay. I think I've heard enough. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's um, call her Sally. Um, so the, the question at the end of this was just if there's anything she can do to improve her situation. Um, or No, if I'm not going to talk about her situation at all. I'm going to talk about your situation and your choices. All right. <laughs> what am I going to ask? Uh, you're going to ask about my childhood. Well, that's going to be my second question. My first question is why are you with uh, this woman? Um, well, we... We're together starting from high school, um, and we've been together for about three years. Um, that doesn't answer the question. It doesn't even begin to answer the question. Why are you with this woman? Because I was with this woman. No, no, no. <laughs> That's not turtles all the way down. This is not infinite regression time. Um, um, I mean, I'm with her other because than my forehead, we became friends. But, um, and what, uh, why are you with this woman? I, I She's traumatized, think, right? Um... She's she's I, phobic. Sure. That's why she's I'm, had that's a history of being being hit with a belt. Her father is dictatorial and somewhat delusional. God is angry at you, right? So she's been raised in a pretty insane and violent environment, and she's pretty severely traumatized. It sounds like, right? Um, I mean, that's kind of why why I'm calling because I want to. No, I get that that's why you're calling, but my question is, why do you? What, what is it in you that wants to be with someone who's so obviously traumatized? I mean, can't you? Can't you? Well, I mean, I'm not saying that she's a bad person; she's that... a victim and all that. But why would you not want to be with somebody who isn't afraid of being chased and and the deep end of the pool and the dark and who doesn't have a history of 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 uh, religious torture and physical abuse and violence and delusionally grandiose father rage and like why can't you go with somebody who's healthier? What is it in you that that needs or wants someone like this um i don't think that it's it's so much that i like can just choose and be like okay i want to be with someone who's who's healthier or whatever i think that i don't really think you choose the people that you love of course you just kind of come happen. on come on come on of course you choose the people that you're attracted to and Water finds its own level. Self-esteem attracts self-esteem. You think you're describing her, you're actually describing you. Do, do you know that at all? No, not at all. <laughs> okay, so what is it in, now we get to question number two, what is it in your history that makes this fit with your personality? This level of trauma fits with you uh, like a jigsaw puzzle together. What is it in your history that makes trauma this compatible with you? I don't mean to um, sound aggressive. I mean, I'm genuinely curious, but I, you know, I don't know if you've listened to the no, show at all before, but this is one-on-one stuff, so go ahead. No, yeah, I understand that. Um, uh, I think that there's some level of that in my own family history, but it's, it's like there's a huge difference between, I'd say, my family and her family. Um, 
Okay, uh, so how were you disciplined as a child? Well, that's the thing is there was, from what I can remember, only a few instances of me being um, hit or spanked. But other than that, uh, I had like a pretty good childhood. Very good, actually. Well, okay, let me put forward a second theory. Since you are taking care of a traumatized woman, do you have any history in your childhood of having to take care of a dysfunctional woman? Um, no, I mean, I, I hadn't, I had not have, I hadn't had any other women, like, in my life, really. No, I'm talking about a mother, an aunt, a grandmother, or somebody in your life that you felt you had to cater to because they had some level of dysfunction. Um, I don't, no, I don't think so. Not my mom. She's, she's fine. Um, so your mom is, my... wait, your mom, hang on, your mom is uh, mentally healthy? Yeah. And what does she say about this re relationship with Sally that you have? Um, she doesn't particularly like it. And why doesn't she like it? I don't know exactly. What do you mean you don't She's... know? Do you not talk I, about I it? This is important. This is your relationship, right? Right. But, I mean... My relationship with her, I've kind of kept separate from my family, I guess. Not that they don't know about it. It's just that I don't really talk to my family about it. Why don't much. you talk to your family about your love? Um, well, my dad is mostly always gone working, so I don't really talk to him about it. And then... Uh, I'm sorry, could you, I'm, just, I'm sorry, I got distracted by something in the chat window. Could you just repeat that again? My apologies. Um, I don't talk to my dad about it because he's working most of the time. Um, what? He doesn't have weekends off? Uh, he does, but I spend the weekends with my girlfriend because that's the only time I have off as well. So you choose not to... I mean, just don't, don't give me this mealy-mouthed stuff. Like, I, talk to, I don't talk to my dad because he's working. There's another reason you don't talk to your dad. Look... If you were, if you broke your leg and you only had a phone that called your dad, you wouldn't say, oh my God, he's working, so I can't talk to him, right? Right, but that's an emergency. This is an emergency! <laughs> anyway, this, you, uh, ugh, because you're young, maybe you don't see, this is an emergency because you are getting involved with a woman who's severely traumatized, who's severely dysfunctional, and this is how you're patterning your romantic expectations. This is what your heart is conforming to. Right? If I... If I have a beaker that's in the shape of a Nazi swastika and then I pour the water into the Nazi swastika and then I freeze it and then I break the beaker, I've got a Nazi ice sculpture. This is what happens to your heart. Your, your romantic relationship is the container and time is the cold and your heart will freeze in conformity to your relationships. This is an emergency. Right, okay. Um, because you're, you're getting well, better at dealing with dysfunctional people, which means you're not getting better at dealing with functional people. You're getting worse at that. So it is an <laughs> emergency. Um, okay. Um, Every muscle we work gets stronger. Every muscle we don't work gets weaker. You are getting really good at dealing with someone's batty dysfunction, and that means you're not developing right. the skills to deal with somebody who's healthy and mature. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does, but I'm not just going to, you know, 
abandon my girlfriend just because of that. So, well, I'm not, I didn't say anything about abandoning your girlfriend. I did ask. If you say your mom is mentally healthy, why are you not? Why is she not talking to you about this relationship? Why is she not helping you to understand? This is a challenge or a problem to be solved. I don't know oh, how no, to solve I... the problem yet. We're just having the conversation. But I would not let my daughter date such a basket case for three years without really sitting down and trying to figure out what was going on and why my daughter was in that relationship. Right. Um, okay. Are you an atheist? I am agnostic. Okay, so you're an agnostic, and you're getting involved with a woman whose family is very, very Christian, right? Right, but she's also going through the, she's... But you started not, dating her when she was a Christian, right? I mean, not, not really. She, she kind of has just conformed to her Christian family for the sake of conforming, and she, when we've talked about it, she says i you know i don't really know any of these things like like if there is a god and all Which these might, things she like, might be just conforming to you right who knows um, i mean does she read a lot of atheist material does she is she interested in philosophy does she or is she just like well you're an agnostic so i'll be kind of agnostic with you and my parents are fundy no, so i'll be I, fundy with them i mean she may have no particular identity because she's been so abused no um it's because I actually started out as like, okay, I thought I was Christian, and then I'm like, maybe I'm not. So she thought, when, when we were in a relationship before, she considered me a Christian, and I considered her a Christian, and then we kind of changed our minds, basically. Um, okay. So why are your parents letting you, why are you, I assume you're not that distant from 18, right? 20. Oh, you're 20, okay. And you've been seeing her for three years? Yes. Wasn't there kind of like a not legal overlap at that time? Not legal. No, because we were two years apart, but there was nothing illegal going on. So. Oh, so when you were 19, you could sleep with a 17-year-old legally? No, we, we never slept together. We've never slept You've never together. slept together? Okay, yeah. okay. All right. <laughs> So um, why can't you, why is this relationship not part of your family's? I mean, let me tell you what I would say if I were your dad. I could be, or I'm old enough, but let me. And I don't mean to pull out the D card, but, but let me tell you what I would say. Um, this okay. woman is is severely traumatized and can't make an objective or clear decision about what her values are because she's still under such intense and crazy parental pressure. Uh, to to conform. She's had a history of violence. I don't know if she's gone through a lot of therapy or not, uh, but she has a history no of violence. Therapy. She's developed... I'm sorry? No, no therapy. No therapy. Okay, so she is an unprocessed victim of severe mental, physical, and emotional abuse from severely dysfunctional, downright batshit crazy parents. And... What is the plan? Are you going to marry into this family? Are you going to have kids with this family? Are you going to break bread and, and have Christmas dinners and Thanksgiving dinners with her dad, given your values and, and all that? Are, is she going to break from her family? Well, she doesn't show any particular inclination to do that because she's kind of defending her family, right? So this relationship can't go anywhere in particular. And I would also try and figure out, I mean, let me ask you this. Are you uh, very overweight? 
No, not at all. Are you ugly? No. <laughs> Are you very shy? I am pretty shy, yeah. Do you lack confidence around women? Um, not really. Wait, come on. Are you going to be honest with me or not? You can't tell me that you're shy, but you don't like confidence around women. I am shy more with, uh, like, making guy friends than girlfriends. So you can go up and chat with women and you don't feel shy about that? Um, not really, no. So why, if, if you're reasonably good looking and you're not overweight and you're confident with women, why are you interested in this um, currently a wreck of a woman? Um, I mean, I guess I would say because I love her and... No, no, come on, that's circular. Oh, I really like her. Right, of course I mean, you love, I mean, you say you love her, but what do you love about her? Um, I love that she's the only person that's honest with me about her family and I'm the only person who's honest with her. I thought she said she was defending family. her abusive parents. I said she was defending her parents? Uh, maybe I missed that, but I thought you said that she was um, minimizing some of what had happened with her uh, parents in the past. Well, I think that she would be minimizing what has happened because she doesn't necessarily understand that those things that happened were way more extreme than most people consider them to be. So she has some delusionary aspects to her processing of her history. I'm not saying this in a critical way towards her, but she's not accurate. Because either she's dishonest or she's delusional, right, if she's defending this kind of behavior. I mean, either she knows it's really bad, but she's lying about it, or she genuinely doesn't really know how bad it is, in which case she's delusional, right? Um, I wouldn't say delusional. Would how would you, how how would you phrase it? I mean, I just, I think she doesn't necessarily know. I mean, maybe she does know how bad it is, but. Okay, so the that idea that she's honest about her really. family, since you don't even know what she really thinks about it or why she thinks it, this idea that she's really honest about her family is not accurate. So let's find another reason why you love her. What else do you love her about? Because that one doesn't work. Um, I mean, she's basically my best friend. No, that's just she's, another way of saying that my... you love her. What specifically do you love about her? <laughs> um, she makes me laugh. Um, she's always there for me to comfort me and stuff. And she's... Um, so these are things that she does I mean, for you. What is it about her that you love? She makes you laugh, and she's there to comfort you. These are things that she does for you. What is it about her specifically that you love? Could you be more specific? Because I think I'm answering the question wrong every time you ask. No, it. no, it's not wrong. I mean, it's not wrong. I mean, so she makes you laugh. Okay, well, comedians make me laugh. That doesn't mean that I enter into a platonic romantic relationship with no sex or whatever. Um so, uh, uh, you know, I, I can pay a therapist to comfort me or whatever. So my, my question is, when you love someone, I mean, you know, my argument is that love is our involuntary emotional response to virtue if we are virtuous, right? So uh, my, my wife is very forthright. She's very courageous. Uh, she's very affectionate. Uh, she's, she's a very hard worker. She's a great listener. Like these are things that she has as virtues. Uh, she's 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 very confident. Uh, she she speaks her mind, uh, and uh, she does have a great sense of humor. 
but but these are virtues that she would have independent of me because in order to get into a relationship with someone you have to admire something about them not just things right. you find uh, out uh, to be valuable after you're in a relationship does, does that make sense yeah um okay so what virtues that, that does she possess is... uh, sorry what virtues does she possess and express and what virtues did she express and possess when she was uh, 16 or 15 or however old she was when you first started dating her? Um, this, I mean, the same virtues that she expresses now. She's, she's honest and hardworking. No, and no. Honesty, honesty. We, we just went over that one. You can't use that one unless you come up with another example because <laughs> you said she was honest about her family and then you admitted. And I'm not trying to corner you. I'm just trying to be precise. This is what philosophy does. It's Socratic questioning, right? So uh, you said that you didn't know exactly what she thought about things with her family. And that was one example you quoted of her honesty. So you can't do honesty. Uh, so hardworking. Okay, so she's hard. I'm going to make a list of this. She's hardworking. What else? <laughs> okay, hold on. First, I want to address... You said that love was your involuntary response to her, to your wife's virtues. Was that what yes. you said? If 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 you're virtuous. Now, if you're evil, then you feel hatred towards a virtuous person, uh, and if you are virtuous, you feel love towards a virtuous person. But it's their virtues that evoke that feeling in you. Okay, right. But I also, I mean, what I was trying to express was, I said it like I don't choose the people that I love. You do. You that's... choose your people that you love when you choose your values. But is it not an involuntary response to, to their values? Like, if we are virtuous, feel... right? So if you choose to be virtuous yourself, then you will respond with affection and positive feelings and maybe even love to someone who is also virtuous. So when you choose virtue for yourself, then you choose who you're going to fall in love with. Okay, I th and I think I have chosen that as I think I've chosen to be virtuous and to kind of have those. What same virtues? Feelings. Sorry to interrupt, because I think that you're just telling me something I want to hear. With all due respect, what virtues did she have and possess at the age of fifteen that you found compelling enough to fall in love with her? Okay, um, she. I can't say honest. I guess um, she was hardworking. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what what a virtue is, but she's hardworking. She's she was funny. She funny know, is uh, something she went, does for you. Okay, well, I I don't know exactly how to explain it, but you know what how you feel when you fall in love with someone. It, I can't. No, no, no. Listen, obviously. falling in love is is not <laughs> falling in love doesn't mean anything. Falling in love, oh, people really? <laughs> say that when they're codependent. Right? They, they say that when they can't live without being in a relationship because they have no identity and so they need to conform to other people. People say that who are sexual addicts. People say that who are relationship addicts, who, who love that first six-month endorphin rush of being in a romantic uh, relationship. Uh, people say that who but are stalking someone. They say that they love people. <laughs> right? Uh, people say they love their country, you know, which taxes them, throws them in jail, and sends them to wars and, and enslaves their children. People say the most crazy things. There's the Stockholm Syndrome where people say that they love people who kidnapped and imprisoned them. I mean, look up Patty Hearst uh, sometime on the internet. You'll, you'll find some really shocking information about how people can attach to, to significantly evil or dysfunctional people. I'm not saying that's you. I'm not saying that's true in this case. But what I am saying is saying, well, I fell in love. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't, doesn't answer anything. 
because it could come from any number of dysfunctional reasons. This is okay, this is uh, who you think is the best that you can get, right? Because if if you thought you could right. get better, then you would get better. Like if you were selling your heart on eBay for a million dollars, and somebody came along and said two million dollars, you'd take the two million dollars, right? Uh, yeah. Right. So if you could do better then you would do better. In other words, if you could have the stuff that you have in your girlfriend that you consider good, all we've got so far is hardworking, which, you know, I guess means that you must fall in love with kids who make Nike shoes in Singapore or wherever. Um, but, <laughs> but if you could have that without the crazy abusive family, without the, the fear of being chased or fear of the deep section of the pool or fear of the dark or all of the other cluster of significant dysfunctions that is occurring within her mind and soul, for which I have enormous sympathy. But if you could have a woman without those things, wouldn't you prefer that? Um, no, I would prefer for her not to have them. No, because she has them, right? That's like right. saying I would prefer to her to be two foot taller, right? She, she has these things. And so yeah, wouldn't you prefer to have the pluses that you find in her without all these dysfunctions? Basically, I'm asking, do you want a dented Maserati or do you want a non-dented Maserati? Now, of course, you want a non-dented Maserati. Is that fair to say? Right. Definitely. So you clearly think that the best that you can do is a woman who is this damaged. And my question is, why? Do you I think mean, you're going to fix her? Do you think you're going to save her? You're not. I couldn't. I mean, you're not a professional therapist. I'm not a professional. I'm not even an amateur therapist, right? You can't save her, right? I mean, if she was choking to death on a fishbone, you wouldn't grab a butter knife and try and do a tracheotomy on you, right? Because you maybe saw a few episodes of Grey's Anatomy. You, you can't, th these are significant well, I wouldn't do nothing. mental health issues. You can't fix her. You cannot save her. You can't make her better. Now, if she wants to get better, and I hope that she does, if she, she does. wants to get better, she can go into therapy. She can begin the process of, of really identifying how uh, evil and dysfunctional her history was, how being hit by belts is, is so abominable, how the religious, hate-filled, rage-filled, destructive propaganda got inside her head, uh, and how she was just ruined as a child by these dysfunctional parents. She can do that, and it will take years for her to deal with that stuff. Years of a, at least a part-time effort. Like when I was in therapy, I was going for three hours a week. And I did at least 10 to 12 to 15 hours of work outside of therapy just to support the therapeutic process. I kept journals. I did sentence completion exercises. I wrote essays. I wrote you name it, right? Okay, and so, so if... Well, I was gonna Sorry, could go I, ahead. Could I interrupt you? What yeah. I was going to say is, at the end, was that there's there's no way she can afford a therapist. So that's kind of why I've been trying to help her, and she she wants you can't to, help she her. Wants a therapist, you are but... not trained. You are okay, not. Well, you can't help her. You know, there's a reason right. why therapists aren't supposed to get romantically involved with their patients. You are romantically involved with this woman. You cannot fix her. You are too self-interested, you are too invested, you are too close, and it is not a professional relationship. And, by the way, 
She's not invested in the change. This is why it's good to go and pay for therapy. I didn't have insurance. I had to pay for therapy out of pocket and tens and tens of thousands of dollars it was too. Some of the best money. In fact, not the best money that I've ever spent in my life. But you cannot make her better. You cannot fix her any more than you could do open heart surgery on her if you found out one of her arteries were clogged. That takes professional skilled expertise and long-term. And, and she has to be hugely invested in the process. And that's why it's important to pay for therapy because then you want to get your money's worth and you're really invested in it. But you okay, cannot but fix That That was, I guess that was the reason for my calling was there's no way she can afford therapy personally. She wants to get help with these things. But obviously, there's only so much I can do. So, you know, what? where do we go from here? I'm not sure what you're asking. Uh, I'm asking... Are you asking me how, how can you facilitate this becoming a great relationship? No, I'm asking what can she do if she can't afford a therapist? Is, is there anything she can do? Why can't she afford a therapist? She doesn't have I money. mean, you're talking to a guy who worked three jobs to get through college and who's been on his own since he was 15 and got his first job when he was 9 or 10 years old. So this idea that you just can't afford something, I don't quite understand that. I mean, I got a job in a bookstore when I was 11. I got a paper route when I was 12. I was working three right, jobs when I was 14. I don't, I don't, I mean, the idea that you just can't afford things, what does that mean? It means that she lives in a household where she has no money. Her parents have very, very little money. Um, Does she not have a job? She, no one will hire her. She has applied for jobs. No one will hire her. Um, it's just, it's in, like almost impossible. Uh, I mean, and her, her Is parents, she gonna go to like if she tried to move out, you know, her parents would never let that happen. What, her parents won't let her move out? What do you mean? She's 18. She's an adult, right? Yeah, I mean, if she if she wanted to move out, I don't think that would happen. Is she going to go to school? She is going to school. Oh, she's going to college? Yes, she's... Well, Christ Almighty, then why, why would you say that? Then, then she, can get, she can get free counseling through the student union, usually. Um, I'm not sure about that, but mm, that's a possibility. Well, I'm pretty sure about that. I mean, you can get counseling through your student union. Um, she just has to say she's depressed or she has to say whatever, and, and she'll she'll go and start getting counseling. Right, okay. That's. <laughs> I mean, this is option. all covered when you go to school. This is all covered in your orientation. It's all covered right, in your student union. She, she pays nothing for school. She, she does I don't not understand pay. what that means. She's on scholarship? No, um, she gets financial aid to go to school because she can't afford it. And like, so does that mean that she, money uh, she's that in a se separate area? She's, not, she's only allowed to use the sewage system to go between the buildings, so she has to use the ductwork to get from class to class. She's a regular student like everyone else, right? Right. So she gets all access to everything that every other student gets. So there's no difference between her and any other student, so I have no idea why. But it's interesting to me that you're starting to throw up barriers towards her getting therapy. No, I, I would want her to. I just don't know if, she's, if she can actually get it for free. All right. <laughs> yeah.
you sh I mean, in my opinion, this is not going to be a healthy relationship. She should not be in a romantic relationship when she is this disturbed. I mean, she, you she, know, her emotional development has been so stymied, so so uh, stopped, so interfered with, so stalled by the amount of abuse that she's received that she is not, she probably doesn't have the emotional age of an 18-year-old. She probably has an emotional age that is much younger, right? Because well, she I hasn't had the love and I the support the and the care and the concern and so on, right? What I would be concerned about if I were you, my friend, is why does a woman who is this disturbed want me? Um, I think the case is not as extreme as as you picture it to be. It's She's a good person and she is doing well to in the environment that she's been given. She's doing well, but... I think it's more like, is this an instance where she has to kind of break free of her family to get away from the verbal abuse? Or Look, if she, if she gets up and walks away from her family tomorrow, it will not solve her problems. Right. You, you understand that? Her family is going to go with her in her head. Right. And you did tell me that she was spanked with a belt repeatedly, that she oh, received <laughs> terrifying... Sorry? She was spanked with a belt once, but... She, oh, sorry, she the, was spanked repeatedly, but spanked with a belt once. She was spanked with a belt once, and then the other abuse, I would say, was like once her brother had punched her a few times, and then... Um, Mostly verbal abuse, I would say, because like if she comes home or something, um, her parents and her brothers will kind of make comments about parents will make comments about her weight and say, oh, you're fat or whatever. And, you know, if she tries to confront them about it and say, don't say that you're hurting my feelings, you know, they laugh it off. Right. Um, and they don't take it seriously. So. So Didn't I, you? I mean, you also said, if I remember rightly, that her father would yell at her, get angry at her, and say that it was God who was angry with her, not her, not not him. Yeah, a few times. You also laughed when you said that her brother punched her. Um, uh, that's not why I was laughing, but she, her brother did punch her. Yeah, I I believe that. So, look, I, I get that you're not going to listen to me today, which is completely fine. Nobody has to listen to me <laughs> at all. This is just my uh, amateur idiot oh, opinion no, I, time. No, I get so I get. You, you're going to continue with this relationship and you're going to continue. Uh, and I don't think you're going to examine why you're in this relationship. I don't think you're going to examine uh, why you can't talk about this with your family or why your family lets you get away with not talking about things. I mean, there's times when my daughter wants me to talk about things that are important to talk about, and we just sit down and talk about them anyway, because um, I have more experience and more knowledge uh, in these areas than my daughter does. So uh, I, I get that you're not going to 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 listen to me, and that's fine. But but I will tell you that well, at some point you. you will. Let me finish. At some point you will understand what it is that I'm saying. I hope that it's before you get married to this woman. I hope that it's before you have children with this woman. And this is not to say she's a bad woman. My heart goes out to her. What a terrible, terrible situation. But the important thing is that there's something in you that feels this is the best that you can do, that this is appropriate to your level 
of maturity to your level of virtue to your level of integrity to your level of maturity you feel this is appropriate that is not a good sign for you there's also something where she grew up with very abusive people and is in an unprocessed state of dealing with that abuse and she finds you highly compatible okay, i'm gonna so i have a couple of guesses as to why she finds you highly compatible um uh, which i won't really get into here but this is not based on health, particularly since you got involved with her when she was 15 and you were 17 or whatever. Uh, this is not uh, a, a healthy situation. And I don't think well, you're going to listen to me now. I hope that you, you will mull it over. I hope you'll re-listen to this. And I would really, really, really strongly suggest that you talk to a therapist too and that you sit down well, and talk about things with your family and unpack everything that is going on in this relationship. You know, your parents... The, 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 this relationship has a heavy impact on you as a child. If it is toxic, then it's important for your parents to know. If it's not toxic, then it's also important for your parents to know. But they need to know everything about your girlfriend. Don't live this separate life. That is dysfunctional. If my daughter was secretly drinking some drink that was making her sick, I would really want to know about that. And if you are in a dysfunctional relationship, your parents really have the right to know. They have the right to ask those questions. They have the right to pursue what is going on for you. Uh, if you want to be in a relationship and love them, then be open with them. Don't l say you're in a relationship with people who are healthy and, and you love them and then just keep these secrets from them. That's not fair. People need to know everything that is going on in your mind and your heart when you're in a relationship with them. So I would definitely talk with a therapist. But even more importantly, and since that may take a little while to set up, even more importantly, I would sit down and talk with my parents and say, uh, I've kind of lived this double life. I've kind of kept this relationship from you. Here's everything that's going on. And don't leave anything out and, and just really uh, uh, open up uh, to your parents and, and get their feedback. You know, they, they've stayed together. They've stayed married. They probably have a few things that they understand about what a good relationship is. Uh, share with them. Uh, understand the wisdom because you don't want to be in the position where you end up romantically exploiting someone who is uh, emotionally still a child as the result of significant dysfunction within the family. So that's just the last thing I'd have to say. I do appreciate your call in, and I hope that you will mull over what you said. And, Mike, if we can get on to the next okay. call. Thank you. All right, Francisco, you're up next. Hi, Steph. Uh, I'm really glad to know that everything is going great with you and your family. And uh, I have a kind of a complicated question. It, would you like me to go a little bit into my background so that you can answer me in a better way? Start with the question, then I'll ask you about the background, if that's all right with you. Okay, great. Um, I found myself in the, kind of like in the end of the road when I had to make a decision on whether I changed the, the fundamental principles of my relationship with my parents or I decide to stop seeing them and uh, the, the my relationship with my mother is quite different from the relationship with my father but I really don't know how to go about and talking directly with them about it what are your complaints about your relationship with your parents okay uh, well first of all I was brought up in a quite a religious Catholic home uh, I'm from Ecuador so uh, the society, the culture here, it's quite more backwards and a little bit more strict and religious and mystical, if you want to call it like that. And so, yeah, I was spanked, not not very much, but I was spanked a little 
Uh, I was verbally abused by mostly by my mother. And and uh, what what form did that verbal abuse take? Uh, just screaming when she didn't get her way, mostly. And, uh, and what would she scream? Just complaining, like screaming to get me to do things she wanted, mostly. But can you give me a sense of what she sounded like? Uh, she was angry. Yeah, she, she, she no, was like angry if you can imitate her for me, just so I can get a sense of, of what she sounded like. Um, I, I can't really remember right now because it was mostly years ago, but uh, she, she was she very angry because... No, 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 no insults, but she would be angry, like, uh, something bothered her, like, uh, I, I left, uh, I, I did not make my bed or something, not really that significant, and she would get really, really angry about it. Mostly that. Okay, and um, okay. what else? Um, to, to, to go directly to the question, um, I'm at the point where I'm starting to move on with my life and listening to your podcasts and your videos, which had helped me more than anything else. I understood that what was holding me back was I was still stuck in this relationship with my parents, which was by the current terms, it was not healthy at all. So I, I, I either changed the, the, the basic relationship between me and my parents or I have to decide to stop seeing them. And I'm but, in the um, process. Sorry, what happened, yeah. what happened prior to you deciding to not see your parents? <laughs> a lot of things. Uh, maybe two years ago, I, I was in a really, really low place in my life. I was really depressed and I decided to take action and start examining my life. Uh, eventually, that brought me into reading Ayn Rand, which absolutely changed my life. And maybe five months ago, I stumbled upon your podcast, and it took it a whole step further. I, I, I changed absolutely my values, my view of reality. I basically did a remake of everything I was taught in my childhood. Uh, I was taught basically Catholic morality, very, uh, very focused towards what we may call family values, traditional family values. And it certainly was not working for me. And so I've changed all of that. But yeah, it's I something that I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's something that, that I thought about. You know, they say that blood is thicker than water, right? Yeah. Blood is thick. I don't know if that's a, uh, is that a saying in Ecuador? Is there anything equivalent? Not really, but yeah, I get it. Yeah, you do for family. In other words, your family bonds with your family yeah, of origin. Sure. They are the strongest, right? They, they, there's, blood is thicker than water. Your family bonds are the strongest. And what that has always meant to me is that you should have the highest standards when dealing with your family. You should have the very highest standards when dealing with your family. And I never yes, understood I'm, then why, why parents hit their children but not strangers. Like if blood is thicker than water, then you should hit strangers before you hit your children. And so it, it just, it never made sense to me when they say, well, blood is thicker than water and family is everything. Okay, well then, 
shouldn't parents be the kindest and nicest towards their children because blood is thicker than water and if they're going to take out their frustrations and, and anger then they should do that on a, a waiter or a homeless guy or a policeman or whatever uh, but this blood is thicker than water thing just never made it didn't seem to coincide it's like saying my wife is the most important woman in my whole life my my wife is everything to me and that's why i beat her it's like no no wait wait <laughs> that doesn't make any sense if your wife is everything to you and you love her so much and she's the greatest and best thing then you should treat her with the greatest tenderness and gentleness and respect. So, but anyway, I just want to mention that. So go ahead. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And the thing is, I've, I've talked with both of my parents. Uh, my dad has been really open towards everything I've said. He's apologized. Um, I recently started going to therapy and my dad wanted to go to therapy too. Uh, he actually reacted in a very way, very pleasant way. He's, he, he wants to understand me and to know what's behind my new way of thinking. And Did, that's um, it, sorry, yeah. in Ecuador, do men kiss each other on the cheek? Yes. <laughs> okay, can you do me a favor? <laughs> sure. Give your father a kiss on both cheeks from me. I do a medium pucker. You can watch the video. I do a medium pucker. <laughs> sort of like this. I don't moisten. Hang on. Let me just put a little bit of chapstick on. Uh, just so you know, it's going to be soft and gentle, but very, very straight. And um, just give him a kiss on both. That's, my God, I mean, what an incredible response that he's going to go to therapy that is curious, that he wants to know what you're thinking. Mwah! More power to him, to him, kiss on both cheeks. So I just wanted to mention that. Yeah, thanks a lot. And uh, with my mom, I haven't had, I haven't been so lucky, really. And And it's really hard to deal with it. I, I'm not sure how to how to move on. Are they uh, are they still together? Yeah, yeah, they they get along pretty well. They fight. They almost never fight. But at the same time, I I usually ask myself why are they together? Because they're quite different. They're well, you said you were raised Catholic, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. So that's why they're together, right? Because that which God has put together, like no man take asunder, right? You, until death do you part. That's a very serious vow in the Catholic uh, tradition, right? Yeah, sure. And what happens when you try and talk with your mom? Uh, yeah, she gets angry when, when I, whenever I talk about something regarding religion, and, and I'm not accusing her of anything. I, I just ask, ask a simple question, you know. She, she made me a Catholic, and I I have obviously have the right to ask her about it, and she gets those really not, angry. You, you know, those are not yeah. simple questions, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I know, but yeah, don't don't uh, assemble with yeah, me, my no. friend. We've been we've been having such a great we, conversation, so don't start telling me that questioning your mother about her religious beliefs and religious indoctrination is not a simple question, right? Yes, you're right. Okay, go on. And so, every time I try to get through to her. Um, she dismisses me. She says, "Like, oh, like, in in a really bad way. Like, she doesn't. She thinks that I'm just whining and and like with a get over it attitude. And uh, I, I've, I've tried to conversations. Reason. Hang on. Do you have these conversations with you and your father and your mother? Uh, sometimes. Uh, and what does he do? Both of them." Uh, he doesn't do much, you know. You know, he still has been brought up in this culture, so 
uh, you, it, you're, you're not supposed to question your parents and... No, 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 look, look, I'm yeah, sorry so, to interrupt. I'm sorry to interrupt, but if you're asking me for my advice, what I would suggest is you sit down sure, with sure. your dad and you tell him mm -hmm. how difficult it is to talk to your mom and that it's, it's harming, it's really harming the relationship. And you don't want it to harm the relationship. You want her to be as curious and as open and as mature as your father is. You need to get him to, to help you with this, right? You need to yeah, get right. him to stand up. He's got to say, no, 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 no. Don't, don't respond like that. That's rude, right? Don't dismiss him. Don't put him down. Don't insult him. He's got questions. You know, we raised an intelligent boy who can ask questions as a man. We want him, when he was a kid, we said, think for yourself. Don't follow the herd. If everybody was jumping off the Brooklyn Bridge or whatever the Ecuadorian equivalent is, would you jump? So no, you'd think for yourself. You go against the herd. We told him not to fall in with a bad crowd, to have his own ethics, to have his own integrity. So we taught him to do all of this stuff and to follow his conscience. And this is where his conscience is. Now, if he's following our instructions, we don't get to insult him for following our instructions. That's like telling him to go to the mall and then calling him stupid for going to the mall. Right, So you, we taught him to think for himself, we wanted him to reason, we wanted him to follow his own conscience, and this is where his conscience is taking him. So we respect that as the fruit of the tree that we ourselves planted as parents, or whatever speech he would come up with to help support you in that moment. But he needs to take a stand with your, with your mom. That's the restitution, yeah. right? That this is the because you, you know if he did bad things or, or let bad things happen to you as a kid, it's all well and good, and I think it's very admirable. Still, kiss on both cheeks for him to say, "I'll go to therapy." I'm cured. But the restitution is, Ma, you know, you got to stand up for me with mom. This is how you can work to actually make things better, rather than just say that you're sorry. This is how you can actually do something. Uh, you got to stand up and you got to help me turn mom around because our relationship is being chipped away at every time she gets angry at me or, or puts me down for speaking my mind. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Th thank you very much. That's, that's really what I needed to hear. Okay, and uh, if you get a chance, let me know how it goes. I, I, I wish you the best. I hope that, and you, you said I'm not having as much, as, as much luck with my mom. Uh, you know it's fundamentally not going to come down to luck. It's going to come down to the choices that your mom makes in the moment. In the crisis moment, where something new, something original, something deep, something powerful, something true, something philosophical, something moral, comes in like an unwanted elephant in a Martha Stewart dinner party, comes barging into the room, there's a moment of crisis. And people have a fork in the road, right? They have a fork in the road. And it's not going to be luck, although there's certainly things that you can do to affect it. It's going to fundamentally, fundamentally come down to the choice that your mother makes in that moment. And it's not maybe just one moment, maybe it's a couple of moments. But after a couple of moments, it's going to be really tough to backtrack uh, and find your way back. So there's things that you can do to improve the chances of success in that conversation, but fundamentally that success is going to hinge on the choices that your mother makes when confronted with something true and unexpected. And so don't take ownership of it all yourself, but also don't let your mom off the hook and say it's luck or good luck or bad luck. She's making a choice. Okay, thank you very much. You're very welcome. It's been really helpful. I'll let I'm you know how it goes. Thank you. Please do. All right, Becca, go ahead. You're up next. Hey, Steph. Hello, hello. How are you doing? 
I'm good. Um, I don't have a question, but I wanted to share an experience um, with the listeners and also as a way of thanking you for research and information that you've put out. It's my pleasure. Uh, the, the show is all yours. Thanks. Um, so a little more than five years ago, I had a seizure from uh, antidepressants. Um, I had like a tonic-clonic, or they used to be called grand mal seizures, um, in a very public place, and um, the people that I was with didn't know anything about seizures because I don't have epilepsy. No one in my family has epilepsy or has had seizures, um, and it was awful. <laughs> and they found out it was because I was on ridiculously high doses of Wellbutrin, which is known to lower the seizure threshold, supposedly only in people who are like um, susceptible to seizures, like people with a history of epilepsy or seizures in their family. I have none of that, so they were basically like, we don't know why that happened to you. But uh, the information that you put out about antidepressants, I think maybe like a couple years ago, um, was like really amazing and opening my eyes to all the crazy shit that happened and um, helped me. I, I was still on antidepressants after that for like years. So I am now medication free and uh, I don't know, I was hoping maybe if people listen to this now or in the future, somebody's on the fence, maybe they'll hear that and be like, oh, I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> maybe they'll save their, their brain cells. Wow, that's that's an incredible story, and obviously I'm um, hugely happy to hear that uh, you're off that stuff. Uh, you know, I'm certainly no doctor, but Robert Whitaker and other people have been on the show who've done the research and have some significant uh, questions. <laughs> I guess is the nicest yeah. way of putting it about the efficacy of these kinds of drugs and their capacity to cause significant uh, neurological damage. So uh, I'm incredibly happy to hear that you found a non-medicinal way and. What was it like uh, c coming off these things? Um, I don't really... My experience with being on meds was that I had, like, bad side effects. But other than that, like, it was, like, a relief to get off them. Like, besides that, I was anxious um, to stop taking them. And I was like, am I going to be plunged into this, like, horrible depression? Um, but that, I mean, it was the same. Like, I ha I was depressed... I had ups and downs when I was on medications, and I had ups and downs when I was off, except that when I was on medication, I had all these, like, awful side effects. And the seizure was just one thing. Like, that was the worst, but I, on another one, I was hypomanic. So, like, hyper is over and hypo is under, so, like, a little bit manic. And that was, like, horrible. I thought I was going crazy. I was, like, staying up till 4 in the morning, feverishly cleaning my room. I was, like, in hysterics all the time. And on another one, I was allergic, and I, like, went to a couple different hospitals, and they couldn't figure out what it was. I had, like, hives all over my legs, and I still have, like, scarring on my legs from that. So I've had pretty shitty experiences with meds, and so getting off them was, like, um, besides I felt like maybe it was an emotional crutch. I was kind of scared emotionally to get off them, but other than that, like, I didn't have any sort of withdrawal that I know of. Well, that's fantastic. And 
have you um do you have any insight now I, i'm sure you have probably had at the time do you have any insight now as to what was the ideology or the cause of your depression that you were originally medicated for uh yeah um my family is awful and abusive and yeah. they of course were the people who were encouraging me and my sisters to be medicated um they were very happy for that to happen. Um, and actually, earlier this year, I've cut off contact with my family. And I, oh my God, I've never felt so like myself in my life. Like I feel like I'm living my life for the first time. And it's super scary. There's all sorts of scary things that, like new experiences this year that I've been going through. But it's incredible. I'm actually like healing my depression and when I feel depressed sometimes it's for a shorter period of time and it's less like deep as it was in the past. Have you uh, have you tried any talk therapy? Yeah, um I've been in therapy since I was 18. I'm 26. I've had also lots of bad therapists um oh, yeah. who like I I've told I've had like three or four who I told that I didn't like, I didn't want to be in contact with... No, not even the first one. I just told her, like... I was like, well, my mom's kind of abusive. Like, why should I put up with that? And she was like, well, you... Everyone wants a mother. Why wouldn't you not want your mother? And I was like, oh, this Yeah, is don't, don't you know, <laughs> Becca, that everyone wants a husband. And if your husband is abusive, well... You, you have to stay with him. Isn't that what they say to women? These, oh, no, that's right. They say exactly the opposite to women. <laughs> uh, no, it is, it is a tragic <laughs> prejudice that, that still exists, that um, uh, if we could take 10% of the outrage and, and exhortations to freedom that we give to victims of spousal abuse and hand a little bit of that to victims of parental abuse, uh, this is the, the, the biggest and best and most powerful way to, to, to change parenting. I mean, nobody can reach into this black obsidian biosphere of the family and, and change things. It's not possible any more than you can reach into the government-run post office and make it efficient. But you can introduce voluntarism into the relationship, and there's no other way to improve quality that I know of. So I'm very sorry to hear what happened. But, um, you know, if it's any consolation, um, uh, you know, Dr. Phil uh, is... Um, you know, has a whole advisory board, and on his website it says sort of very clearly, you know, if your parents are abusive, then uh, you can stop seeing them. Uh, and and mm. it's weird that this even needs to be said. I mean, this is not said to women who are being abused or men who are being abused or whatever. If you're being abused at work, people say, well, you can always quit. Uh, but um, with the parents, uh, it's the last of the Ten Commandments that still has to be examined from a moral standpoint. So I'm sorry that you got that advice, but it is, it's very common and it's very out of date with best practices in the realm of psychology and psychiatry. Yeah, thank you. I've managed to find a therapist now who like doesn't judge me in that way and she's been really supportive through this year and she's an internal family systems therapist, so she's mm. really awesome. I wish I could see her more. I can't afford to see her every week, but I'm like, every other week, I got to hold on to this. It's so great. <laughs> Uh, that's fantastic. That that really is uh, that really is great. And congratulations. And I'm very very sorry about uh, your history uh, as a child. There is, you know, if it's true, I think that there's good reasons to believe that it's true. I believe that it's true, but I, you know, I, this is not proven to me beyond a shadow of a doubt. It's my sort of contingent thesis. But if it's true that the majority of dysfunction in people comes from uh, being abused as a child, then we can see why abusive parents would be so desperate to grab for 
the medical explanation, yeah. right? Because it's like, well, it's not that I was a shitty parent. It wasn't that I yelled. It wasn't that I hit. It wasn't that I neglected. It wasn't like I dumped them in daycare. It wasn't like I was never there. It wasn't like I had them raised by a succession of underpaid nannies. Nothing like that. The problem is they just miss a certain chemical in their brain, which a pill can help them take. So it's not even like my diet gave them diabetes. It's just kind of built into their genes, and it was nothing to do with me. There's a huge market for the self-excusing of immoral people that uh, tragically the government and the pharmaceutical companies and the psychiatric industry uh, seems more than happy to serve, much the de to the detriment of, of kids, I would say. Yeah, my parents were like super open about calling me sick to my face. Like they would be like, you're sick, you don't know what's best for you, you can't think straight. And like they were so supportive of me being on medications. I was on the dose yeah. I was on that I, sorry? Yeah, no, I, I'm, I can imagine why. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and the dose I was on when I had the seizure was like, it was like almost 500 milligrams of Wellbutrin. Like, I, I'm 5'2". I have like a really, I have a small body frame. That's something for like, well, I was going to say it's something that like a six foot man would take, but I don't think anyone should take this shit. So, <laughs> but yeah, and like, I mean, the people, like the nurse practitioners prescribing this stuff were just happy to, or not happy, but they were very quick to ask those questions that are like, oh, has, have either of your parents been depressed? And it was sort of like, well, yeah, like my mom has anxiety and my dad said he was depressed once when he was 30. And it was sort of like, oh, oh okay, like, yeah, that's proof that it's genetic or something. And like, oh, all my sisters are medicated, so that's proof yeah. that like it runs in the Although family. the one thing in common was the family environment. But, um, you know, and the other thing too is that um, parents who are abusive or people who are abusive as a whole are probably a lot more of a handful for psychiatrists and psychologists than kids who can be drugged, mm. right? So if you say to the parents, uh, actually, you have uh, severely dysfunctional parenting, uh, the environment I would classify as abusive, and this is why your kid is the way the kid is, and I've told that to the kid, can you imagine what kind of mushroom cloud would open up on that office? Right. Yeah. It's just so much easier to drug the kids who are the least powerful and least um, dangerous members of that interaction or participants in that interaction. And it is tragic and it is cowardly, but I mean, it's just the way the system is at the moment. Yeah, it's gross. It um, I hope that, I don't know, yeah, I hope people might hear this and it might mean something to people. Because I realized I have this like crazy experience with, with antidepressants that, I don't know. Might as well share it. No, I appreciate that. And I, uh, I just looked it up. The, the, uh, the book I recommend, there's a whole bunch of books that I've read on this subject. And I think the one that's really important is called Anatomy of an Epidemic, Magic Bullets, Psychiatric Drugs, and the Astonishing Rise of Mental Illness in America. It's a book by Robert Whitaker, uh, who's actually been on this show. You can um, look for my interview with him. His basic question is, since we have these drugs that are supposed to cure mental dysfunction or mental illness, why have the number of Americans who receive government disability for mental illness doubled since 1987? Uh, if this stuff is supposed to cure this, uh, or, or at least manage the symptoms, then why are so many more people sick? Uh, and his argument is that the, the drugs are making them sick. So um, it's a very, very good, that, that's a very uh, a quick uh, uh, summary of it, but uh, you can pick that up uh, from Amazon. Uh, I don't know if it's available on Audible. But um, I would definitely recommend that. And thank you so much, Becca. It's, it's incredible to hear what you've been able to do. I'm very sorry 
about what happened originally and what happened more recently with your family. But, uh, you know, if there's a toxin in the air, you got to move. What are you going to do? Yeah, thanks so much, Steph. You're welcome. Thanks for sharing. All right, Alex, you're up next. Hello, Stefan. Can you hear me? I can. Go ahead, my friend. Uh, first, I would like to say that uh, I recently discovered your podcast and your site through YouTube, actually, and it's really helping me. Uh, I'm also uh, listening to your uh, book, uh, Practical Anarchy, and I'm a fellow programmer from Brazil. And since I'm uh, about to start a business, I would like to ask two questions related to that. Sure. Uh, the first one is, I would like to know, uh, how do you see uh, the connection uh, with the way one runs a business with anarchism? And I also would like uh, to ask you if you mind sharing your experiences, because I know uh, you mentioned it in uh, a podcast that uh, you were a programmer and you led a software company for quite some time. So I would like to know um, about some of your experiences, if you don't mind. Sure. Uh, just for those who don't know, and very, very briefly, uh, I mean, I, was, I bought my first computer with money I inherited from my grandmother and money that I got working in a hardware store, um, an Atari 800 with 16K, count them, 16K of RAM uh, at the time, which was uh, more than you could imagine filling up. And um, I learned how to program when I was 11 or 12. I used to spend my Saturdays in the computer lab at school programming pets and other kinds of computers. And I didn't do much with that stuff until later. I, after I was in theater school and after I got my master's, I ended up working as a COBOL programmer because I knew how to program and I was getting back into programming at that time. And then I ended up co-founding a company. I was chief technical officer of that company for, I think, eight or nine years. And then I was director of marketing, director of technology at two other companies. And I did, so yeah, I did R&D. I did my own coding, managed a group of uh, about 20 coders and R&D people uh, and testers and documenters. And I did a lot of sales and travel and presentations and all that kind of stuff throughout China and Europe, you, you, France mostly, and all throughout the United States, and uh, it was really quite a fun ride. And so I, I have some experience in that area. Um, with anarchy, I mean, there's no ruler, so there's nothing in a company which says you can't be autocratic or you can't be bossy or whatever, right? There's just no initiation of force or fraud rulers. So management styles can cover a wide variety of um, ways of doing things. Uh, so you can be autocratic, you can be dictatorial, you can be skeptical, you can be hard-nosed, you can be all these kinds of things. And they may be effective in a particular industry, they may be effective with a particular type of uh, team. Uh, it was never my approach. Uh, my approach was uh, always I felt that I was a resource for my employees. Uh, you know, in the same way that 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 we paid for their electricity, we paid for the office, we paid for their chairs, and this allowed them to do what they do. And they give up a certain amount of salary in order to have the lights on and in order to have air conditioning and in order to have electricity. But they recognize that they make more money by giving up a certain portion of their income for the ele ele electricity and the rent and you know the, the plane tickets for me to go and sell the software that we all make together. But they recognize that because if the software wasn't being sold, they'd have no income at all. So they're willing to give a certain amount of income, to income up to sales and marketing so that they get more income for programming. And so I was always trying to make that clear to people. 
And what I would tell them, uh, both when I hired them and, and would remind them periodically, was that a certain portion of their salary is going to pay my salary. In other words, if the company could be run exactly the same but without me there, then they'd probably make a little bit more. Right, so uh, I was making in the six figures back in the software days, and so each each programmer was giving up, you know, two thousand dollars or three thousand dollars or whatever for me to be the chief technical officer, to be the executive, and so on. And so what I would remind them is saying, well, you you're paying for me. Yeah, I mean, you can think of of the company paying you, and that's true, I guess, to a degree, but equally, you're paying me with a reduction in salary and what that means is if i'm not providing to you at least three or four thousand dollars worth of value a year then i'm not doing my job and so if there's some customer you really hate and i'll go and deal with them and i'll fly out and i'll listen to them bitch about this that and the other and i'll work out some resolution with them is that worth it to you if, uh, if through my experience, I come up with ways that save you a lot of time and help you enjoy your programming more, is that worth it to you? If I create an environment which is fun to come to work at and creative and so on, I, I remember being on a conference call with a client. Fortunately, this is before video and Skype. And the programmers ran past my door and I got hit with a suction top Nerf gun that actually left a mark on my forehead for a day or two, uh, which I thought was actually pretty funny. So, so is it enjoyable to come to work? What's that worth to you? Um, am I dealing with with difficult problems? What's that worth it to you? Am I, you know, if you come to me for help, for answers, do I give you stuff that that is useful to you? Uh, so that to me has always been very important to communicate. That I think in anarchy or in in uh, no rulers, everyone has to provide value in the interaction. Everyone has to provide value in the interaction. Now that doesn't mean necessarily economic value. I mean, if I'm homeless and some guy gives me 20 bucks and I say, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm so grateful. Well, that person feels good, right? So I'm providing value in terms of being grateful. You know, whereas if I snarl and spit on him and say, you know, capitalist lapdog of the ruling class, where's my robot Marxist mommy computer to give me everything I want for free? Well, then I may not be providing <laughs> a lot of value in the interaction to him. So... The economics are very clear that they were paying my salary through a reduction in their salary, and I constantly needed to be able to provide value to them in the same way that they needed to be able to provide value to me. So I was asking, I would ask them every you know couple of weeks or every month, sit down and say, "How's the value? That, am I worth? You know, was I worth a couple of hundred bucks to you this month? Because if I wasn't, that's important. We need to figure out a way that I can, or at least make it clear. Like if I was off doing a bunch of sales calls, I need to justify how that adds to their salary." So I think that that to me was an important aspect of volunteerism. I wasn't an anarchist back in those days, but I was like a 1% a of government's current size um, minarchist, objectivist, really. But I still understood that basic economics of that. So I think that whatever you do that, that is going to provide value to your employees, and that's going to be different per employee and per culture of the employees that you're in and so on, whatever you're going to do to provide value it needs to cover your salary. And in fact, I was being paid, uh, I think 120 plus bonuses in the, in the 90s. And yes, my actual cost was probably twice that, you know, just in terms of wide variety, overhead and, and office uh, and, and so on, right? 
And so I needed to provide a quarter million dollars worth of value to the company. And I needed to provide that to my employees and to my customers and blah, blah, blah. Everyone's paying your salary in little slices and you need to make sure you're providing value to those people. Because if you think that you're the boss and they're just the employees and you're handing down value and you're determining their value, you're missing the fact that everything in economics is reciprocal. Everything in economics is reciprocal. And that's the one thing that I got that was really great from free market economics. And I think that's the most humbling and valuable lesson to remember when you're, quote, in charge. You are still, even though you're the boss, you're an employee of your employees. Even though the, you're, you're the boss, you are a customer uh, to your employees and of your employees. And to remember that everything, everything is always 360. It keeps you from getting lazy. It keeps you from getting autocratic. And it makes sure that you continue to provide clear value to your employees. And our turnover rate was so low. It was ridiculous. I mean, people just loved working there and it was great. We we kept meeting for years and years afterwards uh, uh, just because we all were, were good friends that way. So I hope that uh, that helps a little. Is that, is that useful? Yes, very useful. Uh, I, can I make another question really sure. briefly? Uh, do you have uh, uh, any specific recommendations on you know, uh, how to stimulate employees in terms of promotions and bonuses. Like, um, Mike, are you on what? the line? Yeah, I'm here. Mike, um, I mean, I guess, I mean, we're friends, but technically, I guess we're employer, employee, would that be a contractor or whatever it is, right? Yeah, so Alex has a question about how to motivate people, uh, and you seem very, very motivated <laughs> to the point where I say, Mike, for God's sake, get some sleep. So uh, how, how would you answer the question as to how uh, an, an employee is motivated? I think it has to be there to begin with. I don't think it's something you can foster if it's not there, but I do believe that giving um, your employees a lot of freedom to pursue things that they're interested in, that they feel would add value to the company, is mm -hmm. a really positive idea. It's, um, Steph has given me just complete freedom to do what it is I want to do and what I think is going to provide value to the show. And I've just, I've really enjoyed it. I can focus on the things I'm passionate about. And sure, there's the long, the long days where I'm editing a podcast where the audio is pretty terrible and it's a little tedious and not too fun. There's going to be some of that, of course. But I have so much time to focus on things that I find exciting and that I'm passionate about um, that are really self-motivated that, um, you know, I just have that extra vigor or extra enthusiasm when I get to work on them because it's, you know, something that from the very start, I've not only come up with the idea, but I'm just enthused about its implementation. Yeah, like I'd actually never heard of Joe Rogan. Honestly, I had no idea who Joe Rogan was. And so because I didn't think he was, you know, anyone that I knew of and you know what do I know about the world that I don't watch reality TV and or or mixed martial arts I guess once I did but <laughs> when he gave me some tickets but uh, Mike was like this one of the biggest bumps we've ever had and if I'd given Mike a list of things that I wanted done and said don't deviate from this list you know half the things that that have happened that have been great this year would never have happened and uh, you know so Mike came in as, as a listener and as a friend uh, I've been running this thing for, I don't know, what we just released, re-released a, 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 a one of my first videos, if not my very first video, which was nine years ago, I think, or eight years ago, when I was 39. Yeah, yeah, eight years ago. And 
So, I, I mean, I've been running this thing for eight years off and on, and Mike's sort of new to the running side of it, and yet at least, if not more than half of the value that has been added, I would say, since Mike started in February has been a direct result of Mike, Mike's suggestions and Mike's ideas and, you know, Mike's, dare I say it, uh, scintillating and sultry youth uh, and, and knowledge of <laughs> things that I don't know much about because <laughs> I'm old. Uh, does that make sense? Yes, a lot. Thank you very much. And I, I would like to say just to finish off, that I'm really enjoying uh, Free Domain and I, uh, I'm really, um, th all the podcasts, the books are really helping me to see the world in a totally different way. So thank you very much for that. You're very welcome. And um, my daughter still loves Brazil, right? There's two places she wants to go back to, <laughs> um, Belize and Brazil. And Brazil in particular, because she loved the movie Rio and that we went to, one day we went, I think the day before my debate, we went to a zoo in Brazil where they had all the birds from Rio in cages right next to each other, which she just went completely mental about. And um, so she still wants to go back there. So if you need any on-site consultations, I'm your man. Uh, and also remember that uh, if you have a business, this is true for, for all my listeners, like if you have a business and you want to help publicize it, uh, I am heavily invested in your economic success. I mean, A, I want you to be successful because you're a listener, and B, if you're very <laughs> successful, is more donations for me. Huh? So, um, uh, <laughs> if you if you have a business, uh, you want to help promote it, uh, you know, send Mike operations at freedomainradio.com. Uh, I think other than you know, penguin and goat porn, we're pretty happy to promote just about anything. Now, if you have penguin and goat porn together, obviously, we're completely behind that in more ways than one. But um, send operations at freedomainradio.com. You know, I got Facebook, I got um, a YouTube, we've got a message board, you know, use me as a, a resource. I want people who are philosophers, I want people who are anarchists and atheists and voluntarists and thinkers. I want you guys to do well. I want you to get rich if you want. I want you to have resources. I want you to make enough money to stay home with your kids for the first couple of years. So if there's anything I can do uh, or Mike and I can do to help drive visibility for your projects, please, please, you know, open arms, uh, open harbor, send them in, and we will try and do our best to help, uh, to help get the word out. So um, just wanted to mention that. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Let's get to the last caller who I believe is attached from a submarine, uh, yogurt cups and string. Is that correct? <laughs> or a phone. What Tony's is that noise? <laughs> what is it? Is it? Did you have to dial that with a rotary dial phone? Hello? Hello, hello. It's uh, someone else from the internet willing to talk to someone like you. Oh, excellent. I've been waiting for this. Well, good. I feel I haven't, yet I have. <laughs> um, so what, what I called in about, um, I was going to just talk about how, how status my, uh, my business classes at uh, BGSU are, but then I went to uh, New York City this weekend, and there was a big concert out on uh, Central Park in the Big Lawn. There was like 80,000 people there, and Global Citizen Music Festival. It was pretty awesome. Uh, like Stevie Wonder, uh, John Mayer, they were all there. Um, and I thought it was just going to be something like, you know, we need to, you know, help the poor. And uh, basically they would say stuff that you, you can't disagree with without sounding like an asshole. Um, but then they would, they would only present 
um, like government solutions. So uh, it was just like the most frustrating, but the most enjoyable experience of my life because all of these great musicians and stuff, but um, just, uh, it was so frustrating listening to 80,000 people cheer these, cheer the like, you know, uh, leader of the UN, he's like the second general of the UN was there. And Stevie Wonder just, just praised this guy. He's like, this, this guy's a, a rock star. This guy, I love this guy. He's, 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 I know rock stars and this guy, he's a rock star. And he, Stevie Wonder was just hilarious. So you can't, you, you can't be upset with Stevie about that. But um, yeah, it was just crazy. Yeah, it's uh, it's tragic, of course, that the blind guy is praising the state. Um, and it's tragic, of course. One of my favorite Stevie Wonder songs is "Very Superstitious, Rat in Sandoval." Oh, 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 yeah. And and, and, and he was, he's got he the superstition called statism that he doesn't even see. Go ahead. He he was playing that song, and he's singing. You know, superstition gets in the way, and and then he's going. Uh, we are global citizens. We're going to change the world. He made the guys do the stupid, like, we are part at the beginning. And then the girls are like, we are global citizens. We're going to change the world. And, and then by the, by the UN, the, the warmongering people of, of Destructionville, like, I mean, I, it's so frustrating. I know. I love that line. Uh, when you believe in things that you don't understand, you will suffer. Superstitions and the way. It's like, yes, that's right. You statism and religion. But anyway, so what can I tell you? I mean, this is so standard. I mean, the, the media, the entertainment industry is incredibly leftist. It is relentlessly uh, leftist. They never met a government program they didn't like. They never met a tax increase they didn't like, except as so far as it applies to them. Michael Moore, of course, rails against capitalism and people who don't pay their taxes and then applies for every conceivable tax break that he can find and employs a lot of non-union people. I mean, it's a standard thing. It's just what you have to say. And uh, I don't know if this is all the influence of Judaism, which tends to be a little bit more on the left, you know, with some notable examples like Ayn Rand, uh, who, who didn't go that particular way. Uh, I don't know if it's because people who manipulate symbols are easy to manipulate through symbols, and um, uh, leftism is just, it's just lower order thinking. As Bastiat mentioned 200 plus years ago, the socialists, the people on the left, made a f make a fundamental confusion. They don't understand the difference between government and society. Government and society, these are two different things completely. And when you say the government shouldn't do something, because they don't understand the difference between government and society, when you say the government shouldn't do something, idiots on the left genuinely believe that you were saying that that thing should not be done. Government should not provide health care. Oh my God, he doesn't want health care provided to people. Government should not be in the business of trying to save poor people. Oh my God, he doesn't want poor people to be saved, right? They don't understand that government is in distinct opposition to society, not just philosophically, not just morally, but logically. Government uses force, and force is exactly what people don't want. How do we know people don't want what the government does? Because it has to do it by force. You weren't there at this concert by force, right? You were there to hear Stevie Wonder sing great songs and make bad politics. Well, you weren't there for the bad politics, but unfortunately, whenever... Uh, people open their mouths in the entertainment industry. It's just this full-on gale force jet engine to the face, 
fuel-tipped laceration of leftist <laughs> ideological crap. I mean, you just can't help it. I mean, you just got to, you have to hold your nose. You know, you just have to hold your nose completely. It's like making love to a beautiful woman with really bad breath. You just have to hold your nose oh, and get your business we've done. All been so, there. <laughs> so oh, I just want to point oh, out that, that this is it is tragic. I mean, it is tragic that uh, I think people who are artists, they have a lot of emotional investment and they have a lot of emotional uh, attunement. And uh, they're but so they're very susceptible to propaganda. Like people who who are emotional, people who make who quote reason or make decisions emotionally are incredibly susceptible to propaganda. This is why philosophy has been so traditionally anti-emotion. You know, the sort of cold-blooded Spock, uh, Vulcan, uncaring, Socrates-style, above-it-all, Zen-based philosopher. It's because people who are emotional are so susceptible to propaganda that they're very dangerous to people who reason. Whereas I believe that the emotions are incredibly important and, and fundamental to the act of reasoning because they're just so damn efficient. You can read Malcolm Gladwell's Blink, uh, Malcolm Gladwell's Blink for more on that. Emotions are incredibly efficient. The unconscious is thousands of times faster at processing disparate uh, but related information than, than the conscious mind is. So people who are artists, they tend to be emotionally driven, uh, and this is why they're able to connect with people emotionally. It's why they're able to sing so passionately. It's why they're able to do all these great things uh, in terms of connecting with people at that level. But they're incredibly dangerous when it comes to propaganda. Uh, this is why you've got all these leftists, uh, people like, you know, uh, uh, Harrison Ford and and Leonardo DiCaprio and James Cameron and Sheryl Crow. They're all and, and they're all great artists and they're all so lefty when it comes to the environment. And yet the amount of environmental destruction they have in their own lives is staggering. I've done a whole video on this on YouTube, which you can look up if you want. Uh, but oh, um, it is. Yeah, it's it's true. It's truly tragic and ridiculous. And um, I aim to not have a hostility towards the emotions, despite the fact that propagandists are very good at manipulating emotions and bypassing people's rational centers. That's simply because people's rational centers are atrophied and dusty, and in fact reactive to the propaganda personalities or pseudo personalities that they inhabit. So it is tragic. And I, you know, said at the beginning, I tried to be a novelist for many years. I get it now that I had a synthesis of reason and emotion in my novels, and you can get my novels from freedomainradio.com if you're so inclined, but no, there's I've a great synthesis a of, of reason. Them. I'm sorry? I said I've actually gone through a few of them. Gone through? Uh, is, is that what you people are calling reading these days, or does that just mean you were hoping it was a pop-up book and were sadly disappointed? Uh, yeah, exactly. No, I, uh, I was working, <clears throat> you know, uh, just a desk job, so I would, list, I would go through the audiobooks, and okay. sometimes I would get really busy and I would realize I didn't pay attention for the last half hour. So, I'd, you know, try to go back and, and, uh, yeah, on truth was really amazing. Uh, and, uh, I'm trying to think what, it, uh, well, those, uh, those are sort of, uh, at least I hope nonfiction, right? Uh, because, but, but the novels like just, well, just poor, I'm still reading as an audiobook. Uh, I've got one in the gold section called almost, um, there is the God of Atheists, which is available through Lulu, uh, revolutions and so on. So the novels that I've written and I've written about six or seven of them and a whole bunch of screen, I've written like 30 screenplays and stuff like, oh, um, uh, theater plays and so on. But, uh, it just was not, um, it was not right. I mean, I'm just reading a book by Ben Shapiro on how the left took over television. And it is, uh, it's so funny how people on the left get all hysterical 
about the McCarthy hearings, right? They're just constantly drumming out this McCarthy hearings where nobody went to jail and some people got blackballed and so on because they were affiliated with the communists who were evil Nazi-style thugs and and brutal and and sold uh, all of Eastern Europe into jackbooted uh, fascistic totalitarian thuggery for a couple of generations. Uh, and, and yet, if you try being a, a right-winger uh, or a conservative in Hollywood, I mean, unless you're huge and totally bankable, uh, like uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and so on, uh, you're toast. Like, you simply won't get hired. Uh, ben Shapiro, who's uh, going to come on the show, actually, he uh, he wrote a couple of scripts uh, on spec for um, The Good Wife, I think. And it was all going well, and people loved his work, and you get paid ridiculous amounts of money for one of these scripts. And he was like, yay, this is fantastic. And then they said, oh, you know what? Actually, sorry, Ben, we went to your website. We didn't realize you were a conservative, so uh, we're not going to be able to do business together. Sorry, right? Because they consider conservatives to be like evil scum, right? And it's incredibly bigoted. Yeah. I mean, if they said that about gays or they said that about bigotry, blacks yeah. or – I'm sorry? It's, it's totally bigotry. It really is. Uh, just judging – you know, that's, I hate the left, right? The whole the, – the two – the separation because it's just a, a way to distract yourself and say you know it's these people that are the problem it's and I, I i agree like totally with the you know the left is crazy and the right has their their bill o'reilly's you know god has to be there because the moon is there and i mean obviously the moon is there so god's there i mean duh you're an idiot if you don't think that you know <laughs> yeah no so the, he, the, uh, the only thing that is keeping uh, the America from a complete leftist takeover is talk radio because talk radio uh, is something that uh, uh, since the the repeal of the fairness doctrine, I think it was in the 90s, before the 90s in America, every time you put a political opinion on the air, you had to give equal time to the opposite political opinion. And who knew what the hell that was and who would let idiot amateurs on the radio or whatever, right? So people just didn't talk yeah. politics on the radio because it was just it was just opening yourself up to lawsuits from crazy, embittered, lonely people. And so when that was repealed, I think, was it under Reagan? I think it was under Reagan, in which case it would be the 80s. Uh, that's when, you know, Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity and uh, Michael Savage and and um, all these people, I guess Tom Like is more of a libertarian, but that's when they began to really have a resurgence and they had a very powerful resurgence and they and that paved the way for conservative books and, and so on. And this is where you get the, the and cultures and so on that, that come out of that tradition. And I mean, I mean, it's an it's kind of an essential thing uh, at the moment, just just to sort of balance uh, the, this endless fetishistic leftist propaganda that is just absolutely nonstop. Some of which I agree with, even though it's propaganda, it's still kind of dangerous and and easy to uh, to become susceptible to. And just in the same way, I agree with the, some of the stuff uh, on the right. Yeah, and did you support the war in Iraq at first? I did. Uh, before I did this show, I was a supporter of the war in Iraq. Uh, I just finished reading a um, Noam Chomsky book, and now I'm going to try Glenn Beck because I'm I'm always curious about what's going on on these sides of the political fences. And um, yeah. I, it's hard to get offended by good writing. And actually, Glenn Beck is a bit of a better writer than <laughs> Noam Chomsky, who's a bit of a plodding, pedantic octogenarian. But um, with, you know, I, uh, you I know, like Noam Chomsky's videos. I like him. Um, he seems he seems like he would be a nice guy to hang out with. <laughs> Yeah, he uh, he murmurs some great truths in that cracked up, uh, broken up Clint Eastwood voice of his. But um, so 
I think that uh, the reason why the left is winning is because they're just better at art. They're, they're just better artists. They're, they're really committed to their arts. They're really committed to excellence within their arts. And they don't have the self-doubt or requirement for balance that yeah. people on the right have. So people on the right say, well, Fox has to be fair and balanced, which means that they'll present left and right arguments. Uh, people on the left, I didn't bother with that at all. Like I just read a review, uh, an independent review of the major networks, 22 major networks, and their review of the current government uh, shutdown, or as Fox News more accurately calls it, a slim down, because nothing's shutting down. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. But um, what's happened is uh, of the 22 networks, zero of them, have blamed the Democrats for this. Zero of them have blamed the Democrats. I mean, that's just amazing. Uh, it, it's it's and and Bernie Goldberg's got a couple of books on this that are well worth reading. And his um, one called "The Slobbering Love Affair the Media Has with Barack Obama" is quite instructive. As is Michelle Malkin's book on the corruption of Obama before, like in 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 the politics of uh, Chicago and so on. But um, it, it, it's really just completely wretched. It's so ridiculously. I'm sorry. They really have good reason to fear him. I mean, he's just destruction on whistleblowers. Oh yeah, I mean he's, uh, I mean he's the the hand puppet that distracts uh, that distracts everyone from the last days of the Roman Empire pillaging of the middle class. So, uh, yeah, it is. I mean, but he's the perfect guy to do that, right? Because they have the ultimate uh, racism bomb to throw in the room of anyone who criticizes him who's not black, and even the black guy they'll just call him an Oreo, right? Black on the outside, white on the inside. So, uh, so yeah, I mean he's the perfect guy for the final pillaging, right? Yeah, uh, it's Bush's fault, and uh, you're a racist. So uh, keep the questions uh, to a dull roar. It's not what the people want. <laughs> no, but what what is great about Barack Obama is he reveals the hypocrisy of the left. I mean, that's it's a wonderful thing about him is that nobody can ever claim that the left has any ideological consistency whatsoever because he's doing stuff way worse than Bush ever did, and you don't hear anything. Oh yeah. Uh, so the, the wonderful thing is that to anybody with any objectivity, the left has discredited itself for at least a generation. Uh, anybody who wishes to defend, to defend the left on principle, you just got to whip out a couple of things that Obama has done and watch them go all kinds of silent and slink back in the shadows. And uh, the right has been hammering on them the, for that. And good thing, too. I mean, the degree of hypocrisy uh, about the anti-war movement, the de degree of hypocrisy about the bailouts, the degree of hypocrisy uh, about civil rights and whistleblowers and the war on drugs uh, is just astonishing. The degree of hypocrisy about detainees at Gitmo and the degree of hypocrisy about not pulling out of the war until the Iraq government threatened to hold the U.S. soldiers criminally liable for criminal actions. Oh, I mean, the list just goes on and on. I mean, the man is a, obviously a complete monster, just as they all are, but it's wonderful to see uh, all of the hypocrites uh, who, who have suddenly gone silent now that the, the spell of Obama has gone across the land. They just have lost their larynxes completely. You know, and it's so funny, all those things you listed, they're all, they're all political action movements. The opposite happens when you try to do anything through politics. It's, it's, whenever you try to steal money from someone to do something else, you're always going to get the opposite effect, I feel like. And, I mean, sure, yeah, violence always produces the opposite. Well, it, it appears, sorry, violence, that. violence produces the opposite in general, but it, it, it achieves what you want in particular. Right, so um, uh, the the guy who gets a million dollar subsidy, it makes everyone poorer in general, even him by a small degree, but he's still up like $975,000. So for him, it achieves his goal, but it's always stated as a general goal. Like nobody ever gives a subsidy by saying, 
well, we're going to subsidize these green industries because they gave a lot of money to our campaign and screw the taxpayer and other people and all the jobs we're going to destroy. We just got to pay off our donors. They don't they say, well, this is good for the economy as a whole and blah, blah, blah. So violence achieves the opposite of its stated goals. But it always achieves exactly what, although if it always achieved the opposite, nobody would do it or nobody would use violence. It achieves the opposite of the goals it claims, but it very much achieves the, the reality of, of what it wants, which is to get things for nothing, right? Yeah. And, you know, um, sometimes I, with people who already, <clears throat> you know, agree on the, the morality argument, I like to use this argument from a fact about how, you know, and, <clears throat> excuse me. Energy is neither created or destroyed. It's just lost through, you know, it's just transferred, and some is always lost to friction or sound or whatever. It's the same as government. Well, the en- know, sorry, the energy is not get- lost. To be, to be particular, what you're, the energy is neither created nor destroyed. It's transformed from one form to another. Energy that's lost through friction is not lost. It just goes into warming oh, no, up no, the no, air. No, 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 and that's not what I meant. I just meant it's, it, it doesn't go to the ultimate efficiency of what you're trying to do. You know, right. you can never get the full energy because it's going to go to some other form. And There's I, always yeah, some sort of entropy made... or dissipation or something like that, yes. Yes, I, I don't want to make people think I think that. Uh, okay, but that's so, why I'm clarifying it, so I, I don't get same... 6 million emails from people into physics saying, well, you know, it's not lost, and, and that's true, anyway. So oh, that kid's such a, he goes to BGSU, a bunch of idiots. You know, <laughs> I don't want that. Uh, so, um, but I think it's the same in politics, but it's way more because the politicians are taking so much off the top, you know, they're, the contracts that they're making, there, there's going to be so much lost in the political process to get to that end. Like if you look at the total for welfare and then divide it by welfare recipients, it's a lot of money. It's more than I make. And, uh, you know, I do pretty well for a college kid at least. Yeah, but the look, the, the, uh, the welfare state is just easily understood as a, it's a farm for poor people, right? The farmer doesn't have a farm so that his cows get rich or so that they go free. It's because each cow is profitable to him, so he gives them the bare minimum that they need to survive, and the rest of it goes into his own bank account. I mean, this is the only way to understand almost every government program, but particularly the welfare state and particularly the, um, uh, the educational system. If you look at the, the, the statistics, are very clear. More and more money keeps going into the educational system, uh, but the educational uh, standards of the children are completely flat, no matter how much money gets poured into the American educational system. And people say, well, that's weird. It's like, it's not weird at all. It's like no, if the farmer wins the lottery, he doesn't sit there and say, oh, well, I'm going to make my cow's pens much bigger. No, he's like, woo, lots of extra money for me. So when you pour more money into an educational system, the idea that it goes to improve the quality of the children's experience is ridiculous. It literally is like giving a million dollars to a farmer and hoping he's just not going to use it for a jacuzzi and he's not going to use it for vacations and a big screen TV and I don't know, what do you do with a million bucks? Who knows, right? But thinking he's yeah. going to use that to get nice nice down uh, comforters uh, for his cows. No, he the cows are nuts. Nothing's going to change for the cows. He's going to give them the bare minimum that they need to survive so that they continue to give him milk and meat. And so with the welfare state, you pour more money at it, they're not going to improve the situation of the poor. They're going to give the poor the bare minimum that they need to survive and stay dependent on them, in the same way that the farmer just gives the cows a bare minimum of food and and space so that they don't go completely insane and beat their heads against the, the pen walls and die. They're going to give them the bare minimum to survive and take the remaining profits for themselves. It's a farm. It is not a charity. It's a farm, and people still don't understand that. Wow, yeah. Anyway, it's like a reverse farm. You know it's what? like a it's farm sorry, museum you, you, where they... No, go ahead. Make your last point. 
it's like, you know, they take money to people or from people to, to just keep these people with the incentives and just a small amount of money where they have to stay where they're at. You know, you can't get married. You have your, your girlfriend farms where all the guys just go and cause they can't get married, you know, else they lose their money. And it's like, you're paying to keep them there cause they can't leave once they're there. It's so hard to leave. And I mean, how are you going to pay to move your stuff? You know, you, you're trapped. So it's, it's like, you know, a normal farm, you raise them to get rid of them. This one, you lure them and you keep them. It's kind of weird. Yeah. No, it's, but it's not weird. I mean, it's only weird if, if, if you believe the stated goals of the people you, in power. You know, yeah, aren't evil. yeah. I mean, because people listen to the surface of what people say and they just content themselves with that, and then they find themselves endlessly frustrated that reality isn't matching the propaganda. But that's the whole point of propaganda, is that if reality was there, you wouldn't need the propaganda. Uh, so anyway, I yeah. hope that that helps. Um, I'm afraid we're going to have to call it a night for tonight. Uh, thanks, as everyone. i got to tell you, I wake up uh, Wednesdays, and uh, I look forward to Wednesday evenings. I wake up Sunday mornings. I look forward to Sundays. You are... Mwah! the greatest listenership that I've ever heard. I've listened to a lot of radio. I listened to a lot of other hosts trying to figure out how to do things better or how to make it more interesting and more vital and more alive, more passionate, more powerful, more honest. And I keep thinking it has something to do with me, but the reality is, and I'm not just blowing smoke up your ass, I genuinely, genuinely believe this, that the quality of listeners in this show is second to none. It's second to none. We have the best callers, the smartest callers, sometimes the most frustrating callers. That makes for an interesting show, too, because frustration can be motivated for other people, even if it doesn't budge some of the people in the show. But um, you guys are fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much, so much for your attention, for your uh, consumption. We just uh, moved to a new podcast thing, and we're getting like a quarter million shows pinged over five days. And that's just from the new servers, let alone the old servers. So... Uh, it's just uh, it's just fantastic. I think we're going to break uh, two million shows a month uh, very soon. And uh, that's all to do with you guys. It's all to do with your questions, the quality of what you bring up, the quality of the topics, the, the, the personal and philosophical nature of what we talk about at this show, I think is unprecedented in the realm of human communication. And that's so much to do with you guys that it's a hat tip to you as well. I'm not going to donate to you because I'm going to ask for donations for me because we actually just paid, uh, we're probably going to look at I don't know, $8,000 of server farm costs this uh, year, uh, but it's necessary. Uh, we were just getting too many shows for one server to serve up. People were saying it was taking them six hours to two days to get a podcast, which now they can get in a couple of minutes because we've got a distributed server mechanism for sending out the shows. It's expensive, but you know these are the kinds of problems that you want to have. If you want to help out, fdrurl.com forward slash donate. Greatly, greatly appreciated. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, everyone. Uh, have yourselves a wonderful night. I will talk to you Sunday.